Roses are red, violets are blue. Don't let wild hairs wreck you! Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and our sponsors at Manscaped are here with the best tools to get you ready for the special occasion. This Valentine's Day, it's time to join the four million men worldwide who trust Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming, with our exclusive offer. Go right now to Manscaped.com, use promo code GWC for 20% off, and free shipping. Once again, Manscaped.com, promo code GWC for 20% off, and free shipping. Today's episode includes mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Right, you know, it's right in front of us. Would you? Look at the expressions on their faces, it can only mean one thing. Yeah, you two guys have a chance to run. Is he here? I don't know. Knowing Piper, you just don't know. They know something. They're worried. Bagpipes, snare drum, bass drum. Six days before Starcade. Kenny, I, you know, we got here earlier. Schedule to be here. But he is an unpredictable man. I like the look of this. There he is. Roddy Piper. There's the Rowdy one. There is Roddy. Roddy Piper. Live here on Nitro. He's going to the ring. Look at his eyes. Look at his eyes. No fear at all. We don't have to wait until Sunday. Here we go. Many people are familiar with the Roddy Piper story. Born in small town Saskatchewan, he parlayed a Golden Gloves boxing career into a match against professional wrestling legend Nick Bockwinkle. Though that match lasted mere seconds, he ended up pursuing a decades-long run with the WWF and then a film career. But what if I told you that the Roddy Piper story you thought you knew isn't true. And what if I told you that the true story of Rowdy Roddy Piper is stranger than fiction, more fascinating than fable, and one of the most exhilarating stories in Canadian history? Join us this month on Grappling with Canada as we take a deep dive into the mystery surrounding Rowdy Roddy Piper.
Hello, everyone, and... Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back! To another episode of Grappling with Canada. All the way from frosty Winnipeg, Manitoba, I am your host as usual, the Taxman. And to say that I'm looking forward to this episode would be a severe understatement because this is the first two-part episode that I've done of Grappling with Canada because, to be perfectly honest, the subject matter today, there is no way that I could fit all of the information into one episode. I mean, I could have, and it'd probably be a 10-hour episode, but uh, even I have limits. So we're going to break this up into two tremendous episodes, and I'm really, really looking forward to bringing all of you a fantastic look at the life and career of Rowdy Roddy Piper, starting with today's episode, episode one. To say that there is going to be a ton of information, boy, oh boy, that's that may be the understatement of the year. For those of you who uh, think you know the Roddy Piper story, strap in. For those of you who quote-unquote know the Rowdy Roddy Piper story, even you are going to be in for a, for quite the treat in this one. I have three incredible guests that I'm going to be bringing to you in tonight's episode. Part two is going to be something completely different, if you will. So I'm looking forward to bringing all of that to you in this episode and in part two next month. But first, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. For those of you who might be joining us for the first time, welcome to the program. You can go back into the get back catalog, if you will, of Grappling with Canada on any major podcasting platform, whether that's GoodPod, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Amazon Podcast, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or seal your favorite podcasts, you will find Grappling with Canada. While you're there, please leave a five-star rating and a written review. If you leave a written review, I will be sure to read that on the next available program. Speaking of which... I have two tremendous reviews that I need to get to, which I'm going to later on in today's program. Also, you can find us on Twitter, at 6 underscore podcast. You can also find us on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash six-sided podcast. We're also on Instagram, under Grappling with Canada. And if you're on everybody's favorite Facebook... Hold your applause, please. (laughs) But if you're on Facebook, come on and like the Grappling with Canada Facebook page. And you can also come and join the Facebook group. Simply use that YouTube search bar and search for Canadian Professional Wrestling History. Uh, We've had a ton of tremendous uh, photos and video clips that have been shared on there lately. And uh, would be very much appreciated to come and have you share some Canadian professional wrestling history. Not just specifically this uh, podcast program, but anything related to uh, the history of Canadian professional wrestling. You can find it there on the Facebook group. Also want to make mention of a few ways that you can support this program. In the Linktree link on the show notes of this program, wherever you are listening to it, you will find ways to support the program, uh, some of which include the tip function on Good Pods. You can also directly donate to the program via the PayPal link. 
You can also pick up merchandise for the show. And thank you very much to... There's been actually quite a few of you who have been picking up the show merchandise lately. Uh, specifically, I want to shout out uh, Thomas Bryce from the Sportswire uh, News Network. More on him a little bit later. But you can go ahead and search grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com for your Grappling with Canada merchandise needs. And of note, all the proceeds from the classic Grappling with Canada uh, logo are being donated to charity. So pick up a shirt, support some charity, and uh, and support the podcast. Also, you can go on buymeacoffee.com slash grapplingwithcanada. Uh, there you can also donate uh, to the program. Everything donated essentially helps me provide a more in-depth, more research-driven uh, program because... Unfortunately, a lot of this costs or has an actual cost. So anything that you guys donate does end up helping the show. Speaking of helping the show, I want to give a quick shout out to the sponsors of today's program, Manscaped. Now, if you're like me and you're a little bit, uh, a little bit hesitant to try things, uh, directly from online sales, look no further. If you go onto youtube.com slash C slash six sided podcast, or once again, check for the YouTube link in your show notes, you will find a video which will uh, show you live and in living color some of the Manscaped products. And really, is Manscaping not a good idea considering we're coming up on Valentine's Day? The holidays went by so quickly. Did you shore up your grooming routine with the best tools for the job? The Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped is just the thing that every guy needs in their life to make each and every day just a little bit more special. The number one product in this package is the Lawnmower 4.0, which you can see all about my demonstration, review, and all the good stuff over on that YouTube video. This electric trimmer is designed to trim hair on loose skin. And get this, the trimmer's advanced skin-safe technology reduces nicks and cuts on your body, and it has a tremendous 4000K LED spotlight so you can shave in the dark. Oh, and by the way, it is waterproof as well, as we mentioned in the YouTube video. I'd like to propose making February 13th a national holiday as National Shave Your Body Day. If you're with me, hop on over to Manscaped.com, use promo code GWC, and if you get the Performance Package 4.0, Manscaped will even throw in two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the anti-chafing boxer briefs, which you can also see in my demo on the YouTube program. And don't forget to smell good all over. With their signature scent, the Manscaped Refined Cologne, that will complement your collection with smell perfection. Once again, go to manscaped.com, use promo code GWC for 20% off your entire order, and free shipping. Once again, manscaped.com, Insert that promo code GWC and you will get 20% off your order and free shipping. Trust me, come this Valentine's Day, your lady will thank you. Also want to make mention of a couple of programs that I was very happy to be featured on lately. Uh, We're also going to be talking about that a little later on in the program. But the reason that we're all here today, the discussion of Rowdy Roddy Piper. Once again, as I kind of alliterated at the beginning of the program today, if you think you know the Roddy Piper story, think again. 
there is so much behind the man Roddy Piper that I feel has been either misreported intentionally, more of that a little bit later, or underreported, or has fallen victim to everybody's favorite revisionist history. So, what we're going to do today is kind of set the record a little bit straight on a few aspects of Roddy Piper's early life especially, but then some aspects of his uh, wrestling and acting career as well. I want to make one thing perfectly clear before we get into today's episode. While we are going to be discussing some aspects of Roddy Piper's life, trust me when I say that none of what we're saying is in any way to disparage or to make light or to kind of walk back things that he has said about himself and his career in the past. We're not doing this program to kind of play the blame game. We're not doing this program to kind of make light of the way that he presented himself in the past. As I said at the start of the program, and I truly feel that Roddy Piper's story, the true story, is far more impressive than many of the stories that he has told about himself over the previous um, interviews and such like that. And it is certainly more fascinating than any of the, you know, kind of sanitized or homogenized and pasteurized articles that you'll see written in things like the New York Times. There's one that they had written that's extremely egregiously wrong. Uh, Many of his uh, obituaries, unfortunately, kind of parrot the mistakes that are laid out in other programs. Uh, which were not uh, researched properly, or have just gone off of this wonderful revisionist history. I'm not trying to do the blame game, and my guests, I think you'll feel, are the same way. What we're trying to do is paint a picture of the man Roddy Piper. Not so much the wrestling side of him, but who really was Roddy Piper? Away from the cameras, away from the spotlight, away from the wrestling media narrative, we'll say. And I think that we're going to do a very good job today of really laying the groundwork of dispelling a lot of rumor and innuendo regarding Roddy Piper. Some of it he has put out there himself. Some of it has been exasperated by others who maybe are trying to protect his legacy, More on that a little bit later. Some of it is honestly out there from lazy and inaccurate reporting. So, again, what we're going to do today is really spend some time to kind of unravel the story of Roddy Piper. Remove some of the layers of material that really doesn't need to be part of the story to let the much more impressive aspects of his story really shine through. And I think in order to do all of that, the three guests that I have on the program today, in my opinion, are excellent choices for three very specific reasons. More importantly, all three guests, without knowing it, tie into each other with what we talk about in each segment of the program. Today I'm joined by historian Craig Baird, He has a plethora of Canadian history podcasts. 
And what we discuss is a lot of the groundwork of what small town Canada is like. Because a lot of the start of Roddy Piper's story has to do with small towns. Especially here in Western Canada. Where a lot of people just frankly don't realize what it was like back then and it's still like today. So Craig Baird from Canadian History EHX and a multitude of other podcasts is joining me to really shed some light on the early life area that Roddy Piper came from. And it's really going to shed some light on later conversations that we're going to have in this program. Also joining me on the program today is Stanley Cup winner and Manitoba Sports Hall of Famer Cam Connor. Uh, Cam was essentially Roddy Piper's best friend uh, from his time in Winnipeg onward. And um, Cam has some excellent insight into the mind of Roddy Piper. And you're going to see in his tale how this small town, you know, Saskatchewan, small town Manitoba individual procured, we'll say, his gifts and parlayed them into the careers that we're going to discuss later on in this program. Also joining the program today is wrestling historian and author Vance Nevada. Honestly, Vance is, to say he's a treasure trove of information for Western Canadian wrestling, does not do it justice. And in our conversation, there are going to be some very interesting and some very difficult things to hear about Roddy Piper. But more importantly... And like I said, more specifically, it's things that we're going to unravel to really get at the story, the actual story of Rowdy Roddy Piper. The story that, in my opinion, is far, far, far more impressive than any of the A&E biographies, any of the quote-unquote mainstream media articles, the majority of the obituaries that were written, we're going to really get into who Rowdy Roddy Piper was. And I think that you guys are going to be really, really impressed. Really shocked by some of it. I'm quite certain of that. But at the end of it, I think you're going to respect Roddy Piper even more than you ever thought you possibly could. Now, to get into all of that, We are going to play some classic Rowdy Roddy Piper audio. And trust me when I say that we are going to go heavy on the classic audio in this episode. Because as anybody knows, saying that Roddy Piper could talk his ass off is... Oh boy. (laughs) that Actually, that might be the understatement of the year. So we're going to do some classic Rowdy Roddy Piper audio to get us right... And then we are going to start kicking it into high drive in today's program. Please enjoy. I'm not, I'm not uh, that well acquainted with you. First of all, Andre, uh, here we have this week on Piper's Pit, of course, Andre the Giant. Uh, supposedly the biggest man in the world ever. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, where are you from, Andre? I'm sorry, do, do you speak English? Uh, where, Andre, where do... You come from. None of your business. If, if, if the questions are too hard for you, I will try to bring them down a little so you can understand. I understand big body, little 
tiny weeny brain. I can understand that. That's very simple. Let's let's get right down to facts. Is it not true that John Studd himself took the largest man like yourself supposedly in the world and picked him up and slammed him? Is it not true that John Studd slammed you? Never. Are you telling me that John Studd never slammed you? You trying to tell me at 540 pounds, whatever you are, that you cannot be slammed? Are you understanding English or no? I told you that one time. At 520 pounds, if I had given five minutes, I could slam you myself. I don't care. You're saying John Studd could at Roderick George Toombs was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada on April 17, 1954. Roddy's father worked for the Canadian National Railway as a police officer. Because of this career choice, their family had to move to many different outposts over the years. Uh, some of these outposts include being stationed at the Paw, which was also, he was there for his first year of school. Uh, he was in Dauphin, Port Arthur, Dawson Creek. Winnipeg, Montreal, Toronto, plus spent some time abroad in Scotland and Australia. Now, Roddy and his father did not have the greatest relationship in the world. A little bit of this we're going to get into in a uh, later conversation in this episode. But suffice it to say that in his early teens, Roddy essentially left home and actually ended up spending quite a bit of time living on the streets. Again, something that we're going to discuss later on in the program today. In 1972, he ended up meeting Tony Candelo, somebody who's going to factor in big time in our conversations throughout this episode, but somebody who is not part of the Roddy Piper, we'll call mainstream story that's been presented throughout the years in many of the, we'll say, established medias and also in the A&E biography that you guys may have uh, watched and been familiar with over the years. So he met Tony Candelo, he being Roddy, met Tony Candelo when he was 17, and he trained from, and trained with Tony Candelo till around 1975, after which is when Roddy Piper's wrestling career really takes off, again, something that we're going to discuss later on in this episode in greater detail. Now, to get us in to more depth about what it's like growing up in Western Canada, I'm very pleased to be joined on the program with Canadian historian Craig Baird. Now, Craig and I are going to discuss a lot of small town and rural Western Canada because if you don't live here, you don't really understand it. Even those of us who live here, we kind of see it in a different light than many other Canadians do. So, Craig brings up some very excellent points of where Roddy grew up from, where he moved to, including some great conversations about the pod that we just talked about, 
Also, in regards to time that Roddy would have spent here in Winnipeg, up north in places such as Churchill, and then a little bit more about the landscape here in Western Canada, because a lot of the conversation that we have feeds a lot into the later story of Roddy Piper and gives a little bit more backstory into the man that Roddy ended up becoming uh, throughout his years, obviously with his troubled childhood, but also more specifically being, you know, stationed essentially out sometimes in no man's land. So we're going to get into my conversation with Craig Baird right away. Before that, I'm going to play some more classic Roddy Piper audio. Now, there's just a couple of things to note very quickly before I get into my conversation with Craig Beard. One is we discuss quite a bit about northern Manitoba, uh, specifically some of the tours that Con- Tony Candelo ended up running, which would in later years be referred to as the Death Tours. In the story, and this is going to get a little confusing, so I wanted to kind of clear this up, and it'll get cleared up kind of further as we go in the program today, so... You know, to alleviate a little bit of the confusion, in our conversation, we discuss Roddy's time in Churchill. Now, a lot of the narrative about Roddy Piper is that his first match was in Churchill in front of a bunch of lumberjacks, essentially. Uh, That was the story for a long time. Later on in this program, you're going to hear uh, what the actual story is. However, I still think that that plays such a fantastic part in the whole larger picture story of Roddy Piper. So, we discuss his quote-unquote first match in Churchill. We discuss a lot of northern Manitoba. And we discuss a lot of the tours that ended up happening up there uh, conducted by Tony Candelo. So, not to confuse anyone... A lot of this, as we move in the program today, will get straightened out the further we go. But if you're jumping into this and you kind of know the true story of Roddy Piper, we'll say, and then you hear us talking about uh, his first match being in Churchill, immediately your mind's going to go, wait a minute, that's not true. So, again, things will fall into place later on in the program as we progress today. But we're taking each segment uh, one at a time, if you will. So I just wanted to uh, clear any of that up before we move on with the program. So with all that being said, again, just wanted to clarify before we move into my conversation with Craig Baird. So we're going to get into that conversation on the other side of this. And this man right here, you saw him going at each other and you saw a lot of other guys in the ring. Here is Roddy Piper. We're getting real simple here. What we're talking about here is very simple. They try to ban me from all kinds of places. They try to do all kinds of things to me. <laughs> and nothing has worked. <laughs> they try to keep me off TV. They try to keep me off radios. They have Dick Slater coming up and kicking me in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay for Dick Slater to come down here and be on TV. And it's okay to bar me from TV because I come up and I slap him upside the head. Yeah, that's okay, right? Yeah. Well, let me tell you something, Mr. Slater. Mr. Valentine, that's fine with me. 
if you want to get down and you want to do some fighting, you know, I've had the wind knocked out of my sails plenty of times, man. I've had them down there on the dirt. I know what it's like to eat out of garbage cans, man. I know what it's like to sit there on the street and do nothing. I know what it's like to fight. They want me to sit down here and be calm and be just a little nice little girl that walks around and does nothing. Well, you're wrong, mister. So I'm telling you, simple and plain, give it your best shot or don't bother shooting at all, man. Right, very pleased to be joined on the line by a man who has more podcasts than I have family members, Mr. Craig Baird. Craig, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, and for anybody who thinks that that's uh, a joke in the slightest, it is not. My God, you have more projects than I could even possibly fathom to have. Yeah, it, it keeps me uh, pretty crazy busy uh, every every day, all day. <laughs> so before we get into our conversation tonight regarding Roddy Piper, let's hear a little bit about yourself and what you're doing with obviously the flagship program, Canadian EHX, but what you're doing with uh, the other program that you have. Um, yeah, so I've got uh, Canadian History X, which is, like you said, my kind of my flagship. It's the one that's got the 519 episodes as of today, I think. Um, and it's where it's kind of my catch-all, my small-town histories, um, my broader histories in Canada and all of that. And then off of that, uh, I branched off into um, from John to Justin, which looks at my at Canada's political history, and then Pucks and Cups, which looks at Canada's hockey early early hockey history, like 1900s to 1930s, and then uh, Coast to Coast, which looks at or looked at because it's finished now the trans- building of the Transcontinental Railway and uh, Canada's Great War, which looks at the First World War in Canada. I have to say, I thought I was a history buff. And, uh, boy, oh boy, I just get absolutely schooled, uh, uh, five to- basically five days a week, which is tremendous. <laughs> and it's, and, love, so. and, and you run the, what I love about it too is, is you run the gambit, right? It's not, it's not just, although I do love the small town, um, aspect of it because there's there's so many great stories across this country obviously something that i've been discovering throughout my run with the podcast but there's so many great stories across the city or across the country of these of these little small towns that you may never have heard of but have big personality and, and big things to offer so that's one thing that i really look forward to but then you always get me the kick with the uh, nostalgia episodes i know that uh it's, uh, and, and we had had this conversation before that that uh, Mr. Dressup episode, man, I I can't listen to that one and not get a little misty eyed. Uh, I'm the same way. I mean, I had to spend you know a few weeks uh, watching episodes and listening to that theme song and then talking to Fred Penner and Judith Lawrence, and so it was just weeks of like constantly uh, getting hit with nostalgia. But uh, you know, I like like you said, I, I for me it's. I'm happy with it because it's my favorite episode. Not just because I think it's probably my most popular episode, but uh, easily just, you know, it was just so much fun to put together. And I love those nostalgia episodes just because I, I can just talk about things that I grew up with, whether it's, you know, Red Green or Mr. Dress Up or uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, SCTV. Oh, very nice. Yeah, the Red Green one was tremendous as well. That's Steve Smith, right? That's his... his uh... That's him, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's one of those shows where... I remember being out at the cabin during the summer uh, and, you know, you'd have a rainy day and there's 
there's two channels. You get CBC, and then you got like I think we got C. It used to be CKND here in Winnipeg, and that was like eh, sketchy. But uh, so, and they would all they would have throughout the summers run like just full seasons nonstop of the Red Green Show. So I was I had a lot of fun uh, listening to your program with him and just reliving some of the some of the classic moments. Oh, same with me, and being able to talk to him and everything was really cool. But kind of like with you, it was, I think I was homesick, or it might have been in the summertime. And, you know, CBC in the summer is, there's not much there, especially in the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) But then the show comes on, and I'm like, oh, this this isn't too bad, you know? And, you know, I started watching it, and I I trailed off as the 90s went on and everything. But it was something I always enjoyed, uh, and still do now, and then I can watch it on YouTube. So let's, uh, speaking of nostalgia and all that, obviously all these topics kind of tie into our, our subject tonight. So just before we really get into, you know, your expertise, if you will, and why I brought you on the program today, uh, what would have been your first kind of memories or, re- or recollections of uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper? Uh, well, I would have been watching him back in the, you know, the late 80s when he was at his peak with uh, with WWF or WWE. Um, I, I mean, he was, a, he was a heel, so I wasn't, like, super into him. I was, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was a stereotypical. I was I liked, I liked Hulk Hogan. You know, when Hulk Hogan got uh, crushed by Earthquake, I was writing out a, you know, a thing to him, which, obviously, later I learned was just a way to get <laughs> yeah. my information to him. <laughs> but, I mean, I was, I, I don't know, I think that happened when I was 10, so... I don't know, and I just thought, oh, well, this will help Hulk Hogan. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I knew about him then. I knew, because, you know, he, he was he had so much uh, flair. He'd come in with the bagpipes and were in the kilt and everything. And I had, you know, at the time, I had no idea he was even Canadian. I thought, I think I probably assumed he was Scottish just by the way he Yes. But, and then I didn't see him for a long time, and then I was watching It's Always Sunny in Philly, and he comes on as uh, the domain. <laughs> yes. That's Ronnie Piper. <laughs> That's tremendous. Yeah, it's... It's funny you mentioned the, uh, you know, he didn't even know he was Canadian at first. And there was there was a lot of us in that generation where it's we just didn't know because kayfabe was king. And yeah. by God, if they tell you he's from Scotland, he's from Scotland. Exactly. So I just assumed. I mean, why wouldn't I? <laughs> I mean, his name's Roddy Piper. Yeah. <laughs> and the bagpipes. That are, yeah, it's just tremendous. But with your, with your research with the flagship program... Is Roddy Piper a name that kind of came up in some of the previous episodes that you've done in regards to that program? I believe he did um, in my episode on the pod because he spent some time living there uh, when his dad was there. Um, so I would have probably mentioned him as one of the people who kind of came from the, that area. Um, but he spent a lot of his time in Saskatoon and Winnipeg, I think. So I haven't really covered the big cities, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I did mention him in the pod. I think I did. I'm pretty sure. Yes, and naturally that's one we're going to discuss in a second, but obviously he grew up in Saskatoon, yes. So if if you could talk a little bit about what kind of a city is Saskatoon, and then more broadly, like what kind of a, an area of ground does Saskatchewan cover in, in Canada? Well, you know, Saskatchewan and Alberta are very similar. Um, you got two big cities and you, in each one. Obviously, Alberta's cities are much, much bigger. Yes. But, you know, you have your southern city of Regina, and you have your northern city of uh, Saskatoon, and then you have the same thing in um, with Edmonton and Calgary. only thing different is the, the capitals are reversed. You have a northern capital and a southern capital. And 
you know, in those areas, you'll have a lot of little small towns that are, you know, they don't have a lot in them because everybody goes to the city. You know, everybody, these small towns have a few houses, you know, maybe the local bar and some, some other things, but everybody goes into the city. I mean, I grew up outside of Edmonton in a small town called Stony Plain, and even in the 90s, there was nothing. Like, there was no theater. There was nothing to do. You just go into the city when you finally had a car, and that's where you do something. And so, yeah, especially out there with, you know, there's, there's so much space and there's so much open landscape. Uh, for someone like me who grew up on a farm, you just feel like you're this little island in the middle of nowhere. Yes. And even though you can see the lights of the city, you know, beaming off the clouds on a, on a cloudy night, you still feel like you're the, you might as well be in, you know, Timbuktu. It's, it's, you don't have a car or anything. There's nothing to do. <laughs> and uh, like, obviously with Saskatoon, it's still even, I don't think they have a population of a million nowadays. And it certainly was nowhere near that when, when Roddy would have been growing up. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you can take the entire population of Saskatchewan and fit it in Calgary and still have room to spare. Yes. Uh, because I think the whole province only reached a million, like, maybe 15 years ago. And so uh, Saskatoon, just like Regina, uh, have, like, 250,000 people. And for some people, it might seem like that's huge because maybe you live in a town of 10,000 people. But, you know, Edmonton has 900,000. Uh, Winnipeg has way more. I don't know if they publish in Winnipeg, but it's got way more than Saskatoon. It's probably got as much as Saskatoon and Regina combined. Never mind, you know, when you start getting to southern Ontario where you have just regular cities that people will call a town that have 100,000 people in them. So it's a very different atmosphere out there where, you know, you say you're going to the city and if you're within... 150 kilometers of Saskatoon, everybody knows you're going to Saskatoon. Yes. Because that's the only city that anybody would go to in that in that circle around. And it, same applies for uh, Regina, Calgary, and, uh, and Edmonton. Calgary a little less because it does have some larger communities around it with Medicine Hat and Lethbridge. I guess it's interesting to go from, you know, like the small town feels of Saskatoon to move to Winnipeg where we still, even today, view ourselves as, as a small town. We're not. I think we're about 800,000. Maybe, maybe it's a touch more by now, but even back, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was quite a bit more, like you were saying, than Saskatoon is, but still kind of that that small town vibe, if you will. We still have it today. But I wonder what it would have been like culturally probably not much difference between Saskatoon and Winnipeg at, at, in that time frame you know the the 60s into the 70s I think that yeah for sure they would have probably been pretty similar uh in terms of culture I think a lot of people would have seen Winnipeg as a bigger community and I think because we're Canadian hockey has a lot to do with that yes because you know the WHA came, comes along Bobby Hall signs with the Jets, and Winnipeg has this major hockey team that's playing all over the place, whereas Regina and Saskatoon have never had that. You know, they have their their junior teams and WHL, and that's it. So I think in that term, that, that way, it's a very different culture. And even, you know, your, your airports, even back then, probably flew to a lot of other places that Saskatoon's didn't. Uh, Regina stops flying to international places when I was living in Regina in 2016. So you, you kind of get it's a, you get a feeling like it's a very backwoods type of place. It's a nice place. Like I, when I say backwoods, it makes it sound like I'm saying it's... Oh, yeah. It's not, not meant in a derogatory way. Yes, no, definitely not. Yeah. 
but it's you know you drive and drive uh, to get from Edmonton to Saskatoon is like uh, six hours, and you have towns along the way, but these are all places that are maybe ten thousand. Like if it's a big place, it'll be ten thousand. I think the biggest place along the way is North Battleford, and I think they're thirty thousand. Uh, but the whole way, it's just you know small little towns, and then suddenly you're in the big city, and then as soon as you drive out of uh, Saskatoon, the next biggest place that you're going to hit is Winnipeg, and you know that's that's a long distance. So you feel very like everything is very small and isolated versus say Manitoba, where you you do have Winnipeg, but you do have you know larger places like Brandon that are you know relatively I wouldn't say relatively nearby, but you know they're close enough nearby. It takes two hours, two and a half hours to go from Regina to Saskatoon. So it's it's this little dot of light amid essentially rural darkness up there. And I guess I kind of, you know, we always look at it. I'm, I might be speaking for myself as well here, but we always look at it here in Winnipeg as like, you know, where it's the center of Canada, but we're kind of, we're, we're away from everything else at the same time somehow. Whereas, you know, yeah. you, you look at other, other parts of the country, like Ontario, for example, there's, you know, vast distance between, uh, different cities, but they're much larger populations. So it doesn't, doesn't necessarily feel like you're going, you know, from, you know, desolation to desolation as you do <laughs> kind of here in, in Manitoba and in, in Saskatchewan naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel like Manitoba does have uh, larger uh, centers and they're closer together. And I think maybe a lot of that is to do with the population is concentrated more in the south. Oh, yes. You can, kind of, you can kind of see how the population goes based on the Yellowhead. And, you know, the Yellowhead goes through Edmonton and then starts going down and then it goes to Saskatoon and then it keeps going down and then eventually meets the Trans-Canada and, and Manitoba. I mean, you can see the major population centers kind of following that. And so over half of Alberta is pretty well developed. And then the north, there's great distances between places. And then as you get to Saskatchewan, it's crunched a little bit more. And then when you get to Manitoba, it's crunched even more. So I think that plays a lot into it where you feel like you have a lot more places that you can go to that are nearby, that are that are larger. And then once you start getting into eastern Canada, you know, southern Ontario has cities everywhere and large communities yes. and you know places with 50,000 people that in Alberta and Saskatchewan would be a major city. I, I lived outside of Swift Current in Saskatchewan and that's I think like the 10th largest city in Saskatchewan or even higher and it's only got like 12,000 people. Yeah, it's, it's funny you, you would, you know, the 10th largest in Saskatchewan is probably not even in the, almost the top 100 in, in <laughs> Ontario, right? Like <laughs> Not even close, yeah. But uh, yeah, exactly. the point you just brought up with the yellowhead kind of being the dividing line is a fascinating point. And I never did think about it, but it, it is. If you would look at a, a map of Manitoba, population-wise, yeah, it's, I think, three-quarters of, of the population is in that southern area because Brandon still falls uh, right there as well. So there's your two biggest cities by far in in manitoba and yeah they're even even worse separated from brandon i think it's it's three hours or a little bit less from winnipeg yeah and, and it, but it seems like it's for some weird reason it seems like it's almost closer than say driving from 
Saskatoon to Regina or Saskatoon to Prince Albert. You know, those are the three major cities in, in Saskatchewan. And together, combined, they have less of a population than Winnipeg does by far. I think they probably together maybe have 600,000 people. Mm-hmm. Must be the landscape. Yeah. <laughs> as, you, as you get farther north in, in Saskatchewan, it's all lakes. Like, there's tons of lakes up there with no roads to them or anything like that. Uh, like, when they were starting to name lakes after uh, soldiers who died in the wars, they just named all the lakes in northern Saskatchewan because there's some lakes that are, you know, a few hundred feet. Mm-hmm. There's tons of them up there. So there's nobody really living up there. There's First Nations and things like that, and there are some smaller communities. But, you know, it's it's... Few and far between, for sure. And it's not even like it is here in, in Manitoba, and this is where our, our conversation about the pause is going to come into play as well, because Manitoba, for as much as our population is, is quite southern, there's still quite a few developed um, communities up north. You have uh, the Paw, which, again, we're going to get to in a second. There's Churchill, there's Flin Flon, uh, Swan Lake, I believe, as well, is, is fairly developed. So and Thompson, I'm forgetting them as well. That's a, a, you know, fairly large. I'm using that in air quotations, but for for a northern community, it is. Um, so I, I, most people would be, you know, kind of familiar with Winnipeg, but they would not be familiar with the Paw, and that's really yes, and that's kind of really what I want to pick your brain about here. So. When you were doing your research for your episode on the pub, what kind of stuck out, stood out to you as kind of like, you know, like a like a wow moment or, or something that you just you, you wouldn't have pictured? Um, probably the biggest thing, and it kind of relates to what you're saying. How you know people don't really think too much about the community, and even though it is, it is a larger community, I'm only what two provinces over, two provinces over in Alberta, and I thought it was pronounced the pass. I yes, assumed that my entire life. And I think in one of my early, early episodes, I talk about it, and I said the pass. And then I wrote an episode about the paw, and I'm like, you know what? I should just double-check and make sure that I'm pronouncing this correctly. And I'm really <laughs> glad I did, because it is not pronounced the past. But, uh, you know, I never thought of it. It seemed like P-A-S, so it's the past. But it seems like it's... I kind of relate it back to hockey, because in many ways, wrestling and hockey, the types of people you get are can be very similar. And... Uh, with hockey, especially in the West and in Saskatchewan and into Manitoba, um, the people who grew up in the rural areas, you know, they don't have much to, to do. And so you have, if you get into hockey, you tend to be kind of a, the, the players in the West are very different from the players in the East. Who yes, they are. are. They're, they're, they're rougher. You know, you have Brian Trotje and you have um, Bob Proper and people like that. But even there's some flin-flon just north of the paw, you got people like Bobby Clark. Yes. And so it just breeds this different type of person because of, I think, the isolation. And at times it can be tough living up there. I mean, it, it gets cold up there and there's nothing really around you. It is beautiful landscape, but it's beautiful landscape in the, in the summertime. In the wintertime, it's just, and I'm speaking from experience because I've lived in a few northern places, it's just desolate, and you feel like, you know, like I can go back to what I said before, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, and you're just this little island, and you, the, the whole world is just this distant thing that, you know, you can't even, at times, comprehend. And in some places, like you mentioned, like Churchill, you can't even drive there. You have to fly, or take, uh, at least in, um, I know when I was doing the research, or not research, but reading up on, on Roddy, and, you know, his first match was in Churchill, 
and he was in front of a bunch of lumberjacks, apparently. Yes. And just, you know, how long it would take to get up there, and you have to take a train, most likely, in those days, if you're not flying. And I just think that people don't even realize that about these small communities. Um, they can be very tight-knit communities and very, very prideful. Like, um, because they're isolated and they're, and they're um, small, everybody knows each other, and they have a lot of pride in, you know, being able to live up there. Um, you know, they're not living down in southern Ontario where you're just a few kilometers from a Tim Hortons, no matter where you go or whatever it might be. You know, you up there, it's everything's local. Everybody knows each other, and everybody kind of has that pride of being from a place like that. Another fascinating part of his story, like you said, like his first set of matches were in Churchill, but even doing, you know, as he got into his wrestling career and he's doing the Northern Tours, and, you know, we can talk about distance between places and, you know, people in, in the States will kind of understand it. People, uh, in, in Europe won't because it's, that's just not the way that that landscape is laid. But when we're talking distances between, um, the Paw to Thompson or Thompson to Churchill, this is not, you're not, you know, doing the quote unquote crow's line right like the this is there there if there are roads they're largely impassable especially in the in the dead of winter like you were saying uh in the summer you're almost in the same position because we deal in especially manitoba with a lot of uh ice roads in in the winter time right when summertime comes around a lot of these communities now are just kind of cut off except for flying in groceries or uh, you know, workers or whatever. So there's almost no, there's no uh, easy time to be doing tours like that, especially up north here in Canada. Yeah, exactly. And you think about, hey, you got these long drives through, uh, for some reason, I just, I just picture the drives at night. So yes. you have these long drives and the landscape's dark and you're not even really seeing anything. You can't be like, oh, that's a beautiful lake there or anything like that. But then, when you get to these towns and, you know, in these small towns, you, you didn't have anything like I mentioned before. Most didn't even have a theater. If they did it, you know, they'd be getting movies well after everybody else. You you didn't have much going on. You had the local bar where everybody would hang out and you'd have the arena and that was it. So it seemed like it would be, for a lot of people, a big event to have somebody coming and wrestling uh, in, in a small community. Like, it would break up the monotony. I know for me, growing up in small towns, I... Yeah, it'd be great because if I wanted to, when I had to go see WWF, I had to drive into Calgary or Edmonton yes. uh, with my parents. And, you know, at times, right now I'm 25 minutes away, but there were times where I was a few hours away. And if I'm willing to do that, how great would it be if they came to my community? Obviously not the WWF, but, you know, wrestlers come to the community and suddenly it's breaking up with monotony. So I feel like the crowds would be very enthusiastic and do well. Like, I would hope they would do well, just because what else you got going on? Unless there's like a, a big hockey game going on the same night, I can't imagine a lot of people aren't attending these things. And that's the other thing too, right, is, is you know, you have to base it as well on the size of the community. So if you're going to a town, that town may only have, you know, six, seven, eight hundred, maybe a thousand people. And that's, you know, that's the town and, and surrounding areas. And you're out there performing in, you know, in front of six, five, six hundred people. You're literally, it's over half the town. It's crazy. But like, but you, 
sorry, but like you, you, you know, you, you explain that to somebody who, oh, Piper, he wrestled in front of, you know, you know, how many thousands of people in stadiums, but, and that's where he started, but you have to understand the context of, of what these towns have to offer. It's not, there's, there's not thousands of people. There's a thousand, maybe. Yeah. And like you said, half the town's attending it. I know I kind of compared, you know, rural wrestlers to rural hockey players, but a better analogy would be, uh, you know, up and coming bands. Yes. Who are driving those long distances and they're playing at the local bar and maybe they've got a good crowd, maybe they don't. Um, but then when you see them, say, selling out Madison Square Garden, you're like, wow, you know, they're this huge band, but you kind of ignore the those long years of those long drives and those small communities and it's the same with Roddy Piper. You, you don't think about the fact that, like, I, when I read it, that he was in Churchill, I started racking my brain, like, well, how did he get there? Like, did they make enough money that it made it worthwhile to fly or to take the train all the way up to Churchill because I mean that is a that is a long it's a big trek. Oh yeah, it's, and so I started thinking about that, and then you're in front of lumberjacks, and these guys have nothing up there, and like how rowdy would have that crowd been? All these lumberjacks who've been there for weeks or months on end. I mean, it, the the type of atmosphere I can't I, that might have been the some of the rowdiest crowds he ever had. And he would eventually be in front of thousands of people. Like, yeah, it's it's a different kind of rowdy because and here we're using his name kind of in yeah. in, in, in yeah. a in a punny way. But you know, there are stories about you know him as basically inciting a riot down in Portland, and he's you know getting knifed at basically. But that's one type of rowdy. What you have in northern Manitoba. And a lot of this ties into the promoter who was running at the time was Tony Candelo. And I, from my understanding, a, a lot of the tours were, it's not that they were, you know, making a pile of money or whatever, but he really felt like, you know, we have to go to these communities. We have to provide this type of entertainment, especially for, uh, for the kids that are there. Because like you said, there's, there's really, there's limited sports, hockey probably in the winter, and who knows what else, not only in terms of the sport, but in terms of teams to play, in terms of equipment to get, right? It's it's harder than, and especially back then, way harder than it, than it would be in today's day and age, most certainly. So he, he, he made it a point to do, to do these tours, regardless of, you know, if they're going to break the bank or not, it, it, that wasn't the point. The point was to service these communities who were appreciative and kept coming. And, and, and yeah, a lot of the crowds were, like you said, rowdy, rowdy lumberjacks who were just wanting to see a good fight. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you bring up the equipment. I don't know if they transport the equipment with them or not, but what kind of setup do they have in these small towns? Because it's not like wrestlers are coming through on a regular basis. So what do they have for the wrestlers to compete on? So you might be uh, competing on sometimes not super safe, you know, structures and things like that. Yes. Because these things are kind of, you know, uh, band-aided together because there's wrestlers coming through and then they're going to be gone the next day. So you don't want to spend a bunch of money on, you know, a whole bunch of high-priced equipment. And like you said, even getting it, you know, now we could probably order a lot of it just through Amazon. But back then... I don't know, you order through the Eaton's catalog or something. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> and then and then maybe the train runs. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and you got to wait for the train to get there. So, yeah, uh, the logistics of it and everything. But I think for the wrestlers who did those circuits, obviously it helps play into them. I mean, I know with uh, Roddy Piper, he had a very quick wit and stuff like that. Maybe that's something he honed being in these small towns and, you know, having to be quick on his feet. And because, you know, if the crowd hates you, well, you know, this entire town essentially hates you now. And you have to leave this town. And some people don't realize that, you know, it's, you know, he's a very nice guy outside of the ring, but, you know, they, they might, the lines are blurred. So I think a lot of it plays or helps build the person that, 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 what, you know, the athlete, wrestler, whatever it might be, it builds uh, who they're going to be as they gain more success. And the the other interesting thing to think about as well, and I'm sure that this is the case in in Roddy's instance as well, is you know you're a lot more appreciative of of your success later in life when you come from a or a situation like that, right, where you have to make these you know arduous treks for you know very little you know uh, fanfare or very little money at the time. When you when you do make it big, like someone like Roddy, then you could always like even there's been countless interviews of him over the years of talking about you know how much the fans appreciate like how much he appreciates the fans because of you know their appreciation of him and and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of that is built foundationally in these you know in the small town settings that he was in in northern Manitoba. Without a doubt, and I think he was somebody who realized that, you know, you start out there and you're in those small towns and you rise up to the, literally the top of, of your profession, but that doesn't mean you stay there and you can fall back down. So you've got to appreciate those fans. you got to appreciate the fans who got you to the top and the people who watch you in the WWF and say, wow, I saw him compete when he was coming through whatever my flint you know, yeah. 10 years ago. <laughs> and, you know you still have those fans because you put on a good show. And but I guess the other thing is you put on a great show and then the next time around you come through, maybe you got more people coming out because they're like, Oh yeah, I remember that guy. He, that was just, it was a, he did a great job and they tell their friends, come on, he didn't come last time. Why don't you come see him this time? And you know, it's like with a band suddenly that word of mouth and it helps build you up a little bit more and a little bit more. It's those little, you know, baby steps towards eventually reaching the top. I had a thought because you brought up the band thing. Now it's twice. So I I was on tour with the band back in 2008, and we ran a tour from from leaving Winnipeg. We went all the way out east. We went all the way to PEI and came back. And so I know firsthand what the experience is like when you go to a remote location and you know they're they're there may might be 50 people there at the show or a hundred people. Right. But they're so appreciative when you come back through, right. Then it's you, you quantifiably see it right then. There's more people because they enjoy themselves. You put in a show and you know, word of mouth and they, and they come out and support it. So I, I would assume that that, you know, kind of uh word of mouth would spread more. If the more you're out there, more you're, you know, in and around the community, and especially in, like we we've been saying a bunch of times here, the underserved communities. And I think like by going through those, and then you come back, and there's more people, and then you come back, and there's more people. It builds your confidence, and it yes. maybe tells you that okay, I, what I'm doing 
I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm good at it. And you get that confidence that you might not get if, say, you grew up in whatever it might be, St. Louis or New York, where, you know, there's always going to be crowds. But where you're sitting in these small towns in northern Manitoba or Saskatchewan or Alberta, and each time you go through more and more people are there, you start thinking, okay, yeah, I, I, I can do this. And you start maybe thinking, I can take more risks and maybe put myself out there more. And it kind of gets you along the path of, of what you want to do. So we're going to switch gears a little bit from the small town aspect to something that I've been pondering throughout the course of this this podcast. And I really think it's prevalent to this conversation that we're having about Roddy Piper today. And that is a question of us as Canadians. We seem to have a hard time recognizing our success, our successful people um, our successes in terms of, you know, the international scene, etc. You go on down the list. And this is something that where I found, you know, with Roddy, yes, granted, you know, his big push was in the WWF and he was from Scotland, quote unquote. So I, I can understand why some people would be, you know, um, hesitant at the time to really claim him as, as Canadian, as one of us, right? But after he passed away, it seems like there there was a bunch of a groundswell of support of recognizing him as a great Canadian. It's kind of gone quiet again. But from your perspective, what like what is it with Canadians that we have such a we have such a issue with celebrating our greatness? I think it comes down to, to two words, and it's United States. Um, we. We really want to separate ourselves, I think, subconsciously from the United States. Um, we tend to align ourselves more with England, and we often see the United States as a place where it's, you know, raw, raw, go us. And we maybe don't want to be like that. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. I think we should celebrate. I mean, that's literally the entire, other than I, I have a passion for history, um, the entire premise of what I do is yes. look at all these things that, you know, the good and the bad, you know, accept the bad that we've done and learn from it. But look at the amazing things that uh, we've done. And, the, you know, my go-to example is, yes, the United States, you had uh, Evil Knievel. He was cool. But, you know, we had Ken Carter, this guy who wanted to strap a, a rocket to a car in the 70s and jump over the St. Lawrence River. <laughs> and Evil Knievel came out and said, this is crazy. You know, you can't do this. And... But well, we don't. Nobody knows who Ken Carter is, um, and I think that's just we don't celebrate ourselves enough. And I, granted, he didn't do it. And, uh, another guy did it and got really, really hurt. Uh, Kenny Powers actually was the one who did it. And, <laughs> <laughs> like it's a good thing he did, but he eventually did die actually in a, in a, a unfortunate accident. But um, it's we tend not to celebrate that. We do sometimes with really big celebrities say like uh keanu reeves or jim carrey where we go yeah he's he's canadian and uh, but then we also feel like it's weird to say oh well don't you know he's a canadian uh because that's you know what defines the person and we don't want to be you know boosting ourselves up and you see it in in wars and things like that canadians especially in the first world war were some of the the toughest bloodthirsty soldiers out there yes but we don't really talk about it. we talk about Vinnie ridge and things like that but we don't talk about, you know, how a lot of, you know, the Germans, in some ways, were very scared of Canadians fighting. And we, we just don't want to boost ourselves up. And I think it's just because we look at the United States and we want to separate ourselves from that. We like it when somebody from Canada does well, but 
we don't like it if somebody from Canada does well and then becomes an American, even a dual citizenship. And maybe that's why we like Ryan Reynolds so much because you know he he really pushes his fact that he's from Canada on a lot of stuff that he does, and he supports a lot of Canadian things. And we're like, wow, you know, we'd be very happy that he's Canadian. But then there's other people that we think of and think, well, why did you get rid of your Canadian citizenship? Yes, it's like even though we didn't really boost that person up, or you know, the person lives in the United States, maybe they like to vote in the elections, or their kids have grown up in the United States. A perfect example is Wayne Gretzky. You know, he lives in the United States. He's the greatest hockey player in history, but it seems like he's not really pushing the fact that he's Canadian. And for some people, that rubs them the wrong way. And maybe with Roddy Piper, I think when he died, then a lot of people went to his Wikipedia page and were like, oh, wow, he was Canadian. I, I didn't have no idea. Yes. And I, mean, I didn't. I didn't for the longest time have any idea to, that he was Canadian. Um, and then we see that we go, oh, and he was really respected in what he did. And he was very well liked. And, you know, uh, he didn't have a lot of the problems that uh, some wrestlers do have. And so we get prideful thinking, well, you know, that was that that, that, that guy was uh, one of ours. We all know Bret Hart is a Canadian because even me growing up, I knew he was Canadian. Yes. Yeah. My, uh, my dad would get his autograph in a Calgary bar. So I knew he was Canadian. You know, <laughs> and he had the flag. I mean, <laughs> but Rowdy Piper, it was just a surprise. And like, oh, that's cool. And suddenly, you know, it's after he dies, unfortunately, but then you kind of prop him up and go, yeah, he, he's one of ours. And I, I think going back to your original question, it's just, we don't want to, we don't want to be overbearing with promoting ourselves. And I think we need to do that a lot more because there's a lot of cool things about Canada and its history and the people who've come from Canada that, you know, we need to celebrate way more. Yeah, I have to agree. I, there has to be some type of happy medium between, you know, to use the wrestling term, put ourselves over without, you know, a lot of the grandstanding, if you will, I guess is the proper way to put it. It's just something that, uh, the, the more that I, I look into this and obviously this program is very wrestling centric, but then the more I look at this program, the more I'm kind of seeing a lot of the other individuals from, from our history. And then, Obviously, a program like yours, like yours, um, well, all of your programs, because even the, you know, from uh, John to Justin series, right? There's so much about our prime ministers that I had no idea, and a lot of them were, they were big deals, not just because they were prime ministers as well. And we just, it's something that's not, <laughs> we're very lacking. You know, all Americans can yeah. name all forty whatever presidents they have, but. We just don't have that here, and hopefully it changes in the future. I would hope so. I mean, going with, with what you said about the presidents, yeah, I mean, Americans would probably name at least 75% of their presidents. Easy. And until I started doing the podcast and everything, I couldn't even name every prime minister. I would name quite a few, and, you know, the big ones, but yes. you know, a lot of ones that I didn't know. And it wasn't until I started doing this, I'm like, oh, okay. And, wow, these people did some horrible things and they did some good things and you learn more and more about it. And uh, just going back to one thing you did say, uh, I, I didn't know that uh, John Tenta was a Canadian until I listened to your podcast. Oh, wow. And that's when I found out he's Canadian. I had no idea, but I knew who Earthquake was and it never even occurred to me he was Canadian. And then I was your show on him and I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And that's another little thing that, you know, we don't tend to seek out find who is Canadian. Maybe we do a bit more with Wikipedia now, because you can just find out immediately. But, uh, 
but especially back in the day, he just I assumed everybody but Bret Hart was a, Bret Hart and a couple of others, I think. Uh, I forget what Bret Hart's tag team was, uh, but the other guy, I assumed he was Canadian too. Well, Neidhart wasn't, but like Owen was, naturally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, other than that, I just assumed everybody else was American because it was so American-centric. So why wouldn't I assume that? And I think that that actually applies to a lot of Canadian history where we it can be very American-centric, so we don't really think about Canadians involved. That really comes into play in the Second World War where it's very American-centric and Canadians kind of get lost in the shuffle there. And the same thing happens in, in wrestling and every other sport except for hockey. Essentially, yeah. I didn't know that player... I didn't know that player was, you know, other than Rick Nash, I didn't know that player was Canadian. And then you find out and you go, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. And you, you boost your, your your national pride just a little bit more because somebody in a sport you like who came from where you were, uh, where you're from. Yeah, I have to, uh, I have to agree. Yeah, and, and, you know, further to your point, right, hopefully it's, hopefully it's, there's maybe a grassroots motion because Lord knows, you know, the, God love the government, but they're not going to really do anything in terms of uh, pushing our national, I don't want to say heroes, but you know what I'm saying, right? Our, our cultural icons. So I think it's it's kind of up to us to kind of get the word out there. And like I said, programs like yours, I think, do a fantastic job of that. We really need to uh, be more prideful of, of the things that our people have done. Because you go into the United States and you know there will be a sign because some famous guy was there at some point for a little while. So you know what? Churchill put up a plaque and say, this is where Roddy Piper first wrestled because everybody will know who Roddy Piper is. Mm-hmm. And go, wow, I had no idea. And it's a little bit of history. Yeah, it's not a huge amount of history. It's not like he lived there or anything, but it's a little bit of local trivia and it's something to, to learn. So as we start to wrap up a little bit, would there be, would there be any um, Roddy Piper moments that really stood out to you in his career? Um, for me, because I, I watched him when I was pretty young, I don't remember a lot from his career. I remember his segments because um, he had a lot of energy in those segments. But I, I actually mostly remember him, you know, for the stuff afterwards, especially like Domaniac. Um, yes, that's that's kind of where I got rediscovered into Roddy Piper, and then he died like just after that. Actually, yeah, I found out that he was Domaniac, um, but. I didn't really focus too much on him because I was, you know, I was a good little prairie boy, and I focused on the good guys. I liked Macho Man. Uh, I like Macho Man and, and Hulk Hogan and the Big Boss Man. Um, I don't think Jake Snake was a good guy, but I liked him. Uh, and <laughs> I, I just, I remember, I can remember Roddy coming in, you know, playing the bagpipes and he was wearing the kilt and stuff like that. And but maybe that lends more to his thing like he was he was great he had that signature and everything but the people that i remember the most in my mind are you know the uh the bushwhackers and uh was it bruce the barber beefcake oh brutus yeah brutus the barber beefcake yeah Uh, for some reason i remember those guys more than i remember roddy and maybe that's just because he was so good at his job he made everybody else look so much better and yes i ended up noticing them more and for yourself, what can we expect out of uh, your plethora of podcasts in the near future? Um, just the usual. I've got some. I got a nostalgia episode coming up, and then um, just going to be plugging away. I'm going to be pucks and cups will end its second season in February, and then 
Canada's Great War will start up again for 10 weeks, and then they flip-flop. Um, and from John to Justin, I'm finally finishing the opposition leaders who never became prime minister. And then next, I'm going to be looking at uh, the governor's general. And then after that, I'm going to be looking at the premiers of every province. So I've got enough content there for years. I think I've got like, another six years of content uh, that I can put out for that. So I'm just going to keep plugging away at it and you know, bringing Canada's history, the good and the bad, and, and hoping people learn more about our history because it's awesome. And uh, how many more of the hour-long deep dives are you going to be going into on the program? I'm trying to do more of those. Uh, on Those are my Saturday episodes. Like yes. My Wednesday episodes are always my small-town history. Um, and so Saturday I'm trying to do more longer deep dives, like with Emmett Fitzgerald. And, yes. Uh, some of the other things I did were... And it, that also comes down to how much archival, archival audio I can find. Because um, if I'm talking about something from 1850, I got nothing. I just... Yeah. <laughs> I got the, like, the newspapers and stuff like that. So I'm trying to kind of play that line where I'm in the era of CBC a little bit more so that I can have those old interviews and things like that to, to kind of make more to it and uh, not so much of me just kind of reading a script and, and talking. So I, and I love the longer episodes as well because I feel like there's more to it. I'm not just putting a quick episode out and I learn a lot more too. Yeah, and don't feel like you have to go, you know, four hours plus like like I have to all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can dad Carl in episodes uh out every even if just every few months because there's so much that i want to get out there i just i just keep making podcasts and keep putting out content because i just keep discovering new things i'm like oh i want to talk about that and then it's like, i can talk about that you know three months when i finally get a space open for that so naturally your podcast can be found on every major platform um that you can find this program on except for you have uh, quite the tiktok thing happening right now I do. Yeah, I decided uh, when January 1st came along, I was like, oh, I'm going to start putting out TikTok videos. And so primarily it's on this day in Canadian history. And I just do a quick like one minute, one and a half minute rundown of some cool things that happen in Canadian history. But I'm trying to do some other things like uh, I'm starting um, What's in a Name, where I explain where names of communities come from, uh, the big cities and everything. And then other little tidbits because I'm trying to branch out more into a bit more video. I'm trying to do more YouTube videos because I want to on location more and film it historical places and, and put a lot of that into it because I really do enjoy the video part of it um, like I told people before the part I enjoy the least about podcasting is recording the podcast <laughs> I like yep. all of it and I'm like I, you know I love that part of it writing it all out and then I sit down and I'm like oh I got 6,000 words I gotta go through and I know it's gonna take me like an hour to do and my throat's gonna be sore by the end of it and then I got to listen to it and then edit it and then I got to listen to it again. That part, it's part of the job. It, I can't do the job without it, but um, it's my least favorite part of the job. <laughs> well, at least you at least you have to edit as much. Well, I, I guess you actually would edit way more than me because of the amount of program that you do. But uh, yeah, it, it just I I really appreciate everything that you're doing, bringing a lot of uh, a lot of fascinating Canadian history to the forefront and. Uh, Man, like hats off to you. You do such a fantastic job. Yeah, and uh, same to you. I mean, you uh, you put out fantastic episodes that are really good deep dives. You've got good mixtures of interviews and archival audio, and it's like I said, I I learn things listening to it. Like earthquake is Canadian. I didn't know that. Now I do. <laughs> it's because of your show. <laughs> and uh, before I let you go, where can everybody get in touch with you? 
uh, you can uh, just email me at craig at canadaehx.com. I'm on Twitter at Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and uh, Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. And then I've got, I think, about 700 articles all about Canadian history on my website, canadaehx.com. You can just go there and literally learn anything you want about Canadian history. Coming up next is my conversation with Cam Cotter. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, Cam Cotter was a former professional hockey player. He was a Stanley Cup winner with the Montreal Canadiens. He was also inducted into the Manitoba Hockey Hall of Fame in October of 2015. Now, my conversation with Cam kind of joins a mid-conversation, if you will. Uh, honestly, we talked for probably 15 or 20 minutes before what you're going to hear recorded on the uh, program. Just all things Winnipeg. As was this case with my conversation last month in the George Gordienko episode with Marty Goldstein, when you get a couple of guys from Winnipeg talking, there's just, there's so much ground to cover. And uh, it's funny that where I live now in Winnipeg didn't exist when he used to live here, although it is essentially a stone's throw from where he used to live uh, growing up in Windsor Park here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So uh, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Uh, Cam tells a lot of tremendous stories about himself and Roddy. At times, some of the conversation is uh, difficult to hear. And there is a lot of emotion in what Cam has to say about Roddy. So I really hope that everybody enjoys the conversation that I have with Cam Connor. Cam, uh, it was an absolute pleasure uh, talking to him in regards to uh, Roddy Piper. So I'm real pleased to be bringing this conversation to you guys. But first, how about we do a little more Roddy Piper classic audio. So enjoy this promo. And on the other side, my tremendous conversation with Stanley Cup winner, Cam Connor. The very controversial host of Piper's Pit, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah. Mr. Piper, I would stick around, but you're going to have to excuse me. I have to go to the men's room. I'll be right back. Thank you. Oh, going home? Oh, my goodness. That's fine. Cow Palace. You can go to the men's room in the Cow Palace. That's a wonderful name in San Francisco because the Cow Palace is someplace that I would be proud to call my home. At Cow Palace is someplace that I'd be proud to bring my gal. Because obviously, if you live in San Francisco and you are going out with gals, Obviously, they belong in the cow palace. I saw one. The only thing she was missing was antlers. She would have been in season jack, man. I saw her coming up to me, asking me for a date. I said, man, I'm hot rod. Are you kidding me? He said, yeah, but aren't you the one that's going to fight Mr. Wonderful? I said, yeah, I'm going to fight Mr. Blunderful. He says, but aren't you the one that's going to fight him with all them wrestlers around the ring? He says, yeah, that's me. He says, don't you know what he's thinking? Of course. Yeah, yeah, I know what he's thinking. Absolutely nothing, man. When he's in a room alone, he is all alone. You see, you forget. I rode with him. I know what an idiot this guy is. I know his moves. Oh, yes, he's tough. I know he's tough. You think I ain't, man? I've been around. You know that. I've been there before. He's tough enough to go and bench press 500 pounds. Who really cares, man, huh? Your idea here of a wrestling match here, you got 12 wrestlers around the ring. You got dancing midgets and leathers. You got your own. You got everything that you've ever wanted in a match. 
You know why I signed this? Incidentally, it didn't take me two months to sign this match. No, 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 no. It didn't take me two months to make up my mind, brother. No, no, no. I said, you want me to fight somebody? I'll fight anybody. Who do you want? Just let me fight him. Orndorff says, well, I'm going to take my time. going to take me about two months, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do right now and go to the bathroom and think about it, and now I'm back. <laughs> right there. It's your idea of Orndorff's father. You see, that's going to happen after you fight me. There's going to be nothing left of you except for old and bald <laughs> and ugly. <laughs> you ain't going to be no hot rod. You're just going to be somebody that can't keep his bladder empty. <laughs> Thank you very much, Roddy Roddy Piper. Back in the Bay Area at the Cow Palace, Thursday night, October the 10th. Don't you dare. Where do you want to start? Well, essentially, we could we could start almost at the beginning because uh, I understand that you you essentially were friends with Roddy like right from from childhood. But I I really want to get a good sense and like there are so many stories about Roddy later on in life, but there's not very much about how he was like as, as, uh, like when he was growing up. So that's really what I, I would love to dig into with you. Yeah. Like I was friends with Rod. I was at his funeral and, uh, I, I would say he was like 45 years. That you guys were friends. Yeah. And like he would, uh, I would, like I, when I lived in New York, uh, on the New York Connecticut border, it was about three minutes on the world W called WWF at the time. Yes. From their headquarters, and Rod would come over all the time and spend the night, and we'd go out for some drinks, and he'd take me out with Andre the Giant and uh, a bunch of the other wrestlers, and uh, boy, that's quite an experience. But, uh, you know, with Rod, he, we were about, I'm going to say, you know, 15, 16, 17, right in that area. I'm thinking about 16. Yes. Probably 15. Anyways, he moved into Winnipeg, and um, it just so happens our lockers were right next to each other. And, uh, you know, Rod and I, we didn't talk. We just did our own thing. And, uh, And I've mentioned, you probably heard it, the reason I got to know Rod was because one day I got a knock on my back door for somebody, and they had Rod with them, and they just said, hey, Cam, you're a pretty tough guy, and uh, this new guy, Rod's pretty tough one. You have a fight. <laughs> so I said, sure. So we went out to my garage, and um, the other guys who closed the door didn't get to watch, and we just went at him. And uh, I could tell right away that this guy knew what he was doing because uh, he was throwing punches at me. And uh, and I just said, if I'm going to beat him, I'm going to have to knock this guy out. So my hands were pretty fast, and I threw a left at him. And he got his head out of the way. And, you know, when you hit something, you don't just hit it and stop. You go through the object. Yes. So I threw that punch, like, hard and fast, and he just moved his head, and my arm kept going. And my tricep snapped like a rubber band. And so he got me with a couple good shots, and I had a 650 Triumph in my garage, and he could hit me, and I went backwards, and just like the movie, (laughs) over my bike. (laughs) And so did you watch that Rod documentary, Piper? The WWE one? 
Oh, yeah, the A&E, yes, I did, yes. So they, they, I guess, you know, they had asked me for some pictures, and so I said, yeah, I got some of Rodgers. Well, you do, so and it was like, then a picture of me sitting on my motorcycle. So they, they put that in the documentary, I guess, just to show I wasn't bullshitting. Yeah. The Was that like, by the way, just on the side of the road? Not many people want to pick us up. Yeah, <laughs> even then, I'm sure. Oh yeah. So you know, we get to this place, and uh, we got to well, we got to as far as Thunder Bay, I think. I'm going to say the first day, but maybe it was the second day. And um, God said, "You know what? I know a spot where there's a hostel, youth hostel. We could spend the night there." I said, "Okay, great." So whoever drove us, dropped us off somewhere, and it was late at night, and it was cold, and we walked quite a bit, and we came to this building where the hostel was, but it wasn't there anymore. Oh. So Rod said, oh, man, let me just knock on this door. It was a building, right? A big building. So yeah. He was banging on the door, and it's like 2 in the morning, and some guy answered the door. He said, what do you guys want? He said, well, it used to be 
be a hospital. I was just wondering, you know, if it's still a hospital. He goes, no, it's not. And Rod explained that, you know, we just hit tight gear. We're looking for a place to stay. And this guy said, he's kind of a creepy guy. He said, okay, come in here. And it was just like a big bear warehouse. And he took us to the middle of it. And he said, sleep here on the floor. We said, okay. <laughs> and so we went to sleep right away. And, you know, when there's somebody, you're sleeping, but you got that sixth sense. Yes. When somebody's standing over top of you, you just kind of feel it. Yeah. And both of us woke up at the same time, and this guy was standing over top of us, and he said, leave right now, leave. We said, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll get Yeah, we're out here. <laughs> so we wandered around Thunder Bay, and we found this baseball diamond that had a little dugout, and the benches you know, in the dugout were probably 10 inches across. We slept in the baseball dugout you know, on these benches, froze our ass off and kept falling off these nails. Jeez. And then uh, the way we worked it is one of us would stand there with the thumb out for four hours and then we'd switch off to the next four, you know. So I was in a place called Wawa. And in the Reader's Digest back in the day, it said, if you're ever hitchhiking across Canada, like, don't get, like, dropped off in Wawa. It's the hardest spot in the world to get a ride from. <laughs> We're in Wawa. Of so course. Said, well, I'm going to sleep in the ditch. You're to go first. So I did my four hours, and then I was looking forward to laying in the ditch, going to sleep for a while. And Rod, he got up, and then he walks across the street to this gas station. And I was watching the guy. And uh, he's talking to the guy's pumping gas, and he talked to this one man. And then I see him waving me, so I grab all his stuff when I run across the street. And uh, I always remember the guy's name who gave us a ride. His name was Tom Luck. And he was heading to Montreal, but he'd drive through Toronto for us. And um, so he, he gave us the ride to Toronto, and... Uh, we got dropped off downtown Toronto and Young Street, and uh, I mean, I could go on and on, but we ended up getting conned out of all our money. Jeez. And uh, there was, uh, like, Rod, he could talk a bird out of a tree. He really could. He was smooth, smooth, smooth. And so, we won't go into all the details, but we got conned, and this guy was in this, uh, this establishment who sucked us in for all our money. And so when we got out of there, we said, we don't have a dime between the two of us. We just got to Toronto. Yeah. So we, Rod said, we're going to the police station. This guy conned us. So we went to the cops, which was only a couple blocks away, and we told them the story of what happened. And they said, oh, yeah, they do that all the time. Every week there's people in here that have got conned out of their money from this group. And there's nothing that we could do. About oh, it. they just said, picked marks, eh? About it. So we went back and they closed at 8 o'clock. So we sat across the street. We said, we're going to get that guy when he leaves. So we walked across the street and he comes out, but he's with two, man, they look like ex-Green Beret. Yeah. And we're only in like 17, 18, right? And so Rod says, let's go talk to him. So we go and Rod. 
claimed that, you know, we pitched like we just got here. We don't have any money at all. And, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm more aggressive than Robin. I just think, give us our good money. We're coming after you right yeah. now. <laughs> I was a little more rude than Rod. He kept it smooth. And so the guy finally said, well, feel bad for you guys. So he said to Rod, I'll give you 20 bucks back. And you, and you get nothing. Oh. And I'm having to sleep in the YMCA. You got to <laughs> get up at 5.30 in the morning and you got to sweep and clean up and then they give you some sandwiches for the day. So, so you know, we did that. Um, we would spend a lot of time at Falcon Lake. At the time, they they had a trailer that they kept out there all summer. So Rod played the bagpipes and uh, he would playing those bagpipes every night. Man, you could hear it all over the campsite, over you know, the water. And, uh, when we were hitchhiking also, Rod learned how to play the boat organ. And man, don't ever hitchhike with somebody learning how to play a boat organ. <laughs> that was torture. It was torture. So, um, anyway, so he did. He, he did. It actually was not too bad by the time we got back to Winnipeg. And what else? Uh, you know, so Windsor Park Collegiate, we went to the school. And uh, and so Rod, you know, he, I think, I think, I don't know, he didn't finish his grade 12, although he might have picked it up, but I'm not sure about that. And uh, he, um, he would always, Rod and I were some of the same classes and uh, we're an American history class and so when we would go in say our class was at two o'clock on a certain day the hour before the class was empty the teacher was always in the teacher's room and so Rod figured it out he would stick a toothpick into the lock and then break it off so when the teacher came and tried to get his key in there he would push that <laughs> toothpick in farther and he wasn't able to get in the classroom, so he'd have to cancel class, and the janitors would have to take the locks apart and so on. And Rod did this in a, a few classes that we attended. And then one day the teachers were talking, and they were talking about the problem with these toothpicks in the lock, and then they said, well, I have to be too. So they compared who was in their oh, class yeah. in their classes. And so it worked out that it was myself and Rod and the smartest guy in the school. <laughs> so that's kind of what we did in Winnipeg. And then at about oh, 1920 years old, he, uh, I remember his first fight was in Winnipeg, um, just off of Main Street, just off of Main Street, and it starts with an R. Redwood? Some little spot, and uh, so it was his first fight. He didn't have any money. I didn't have any money, and he didn't have wrestling boots, so he used his boxing boots because he boxed in Toronto. Yep. And uh, and he said, "Well, how can we make an impression?" And so again, we didn't have any money, so I come up with the idea. I said, "You know what we should do? Let's go out and pick a whole bunch of dandelions." And uh, he had this little basket, so as he's walking to the ring, he would uh, reach into his basket and throw dandelions on people all the way up 
If you go off the road near Falcon, nobody's finding you for a while because that's that's a big area. Oh, I know, I know, I know. So anyway, so you know that's kind of what Rod and I did, and we used to go to socials and uh, like I remember I fought five weekends in a row and uh, in these socials, and uh, I remember I fought one guy. He was really a tough kid. I fought him the year before. Get this in a church. <laughs> it is Winnipeg. I'm not surprised. Yeah, it was in St. Patel. You know, there, there's a church that looks like, uh, and it's on St. Mary's. I think it's St. Mary's or St. Anne's. And it's like, it looks like it's uh, kind of like an upside down boat. Yes, I know. Which way. Yeah, it's close to the fire hall. So right in there, it was a, a wedding reception that I ended up getting in a fight. <laughs> and, uh, um, anyway, so the next year, we were at another social. The same guy that I fought was causing problems him and a friend. And we were, Rod and I were walking to our car, and uh, there was a fight going on in the parking lot. And uh, there was one smaller guy on the bottom, and somebody beat him up. I don't like to see that because I always think, you know, that if that was my brother or my friend or somebody I know, I would, you know, like somebody to break it up. So I went over and I said to the guy on the bottom, hey, you had enough? He goes, yes, I lost. I'm finished. I said, okay, yeah. it's over. And so the guy that I fought the year before, who I beat up pretty good, um, he, he didn't remember me. So he pushes me and he said, who the you think you are stopping this fight? And I said, this guy in the bottom doesn't want to fight anymore. And he said, I ought to kick the shit out of you. And when you're a street fighter, you learn that, you know what, if you think you're going to get the fight, like, just start swinging right Yeah, now. you're ready to go. Punching. So I, I was a street fighter. And so as he's talking to me, I said, I know I'm going to have to fight this guy. So I remember I drilled him in the mouth three times. He was bleeding, but he just said, you're dead. And I said, oh, those are my best punches. And I didn't remember <laughs> this guy either. And so then I kicked him right in the knackers square. And, you know, I was a hockey player, and my legs were strong. And he just stood there, and he said, you're dead. And I remember saying, Rod, sucker the guy, man. I'm not going to be able to take this guy. <laughs> I took all my best shots. And, uh, you know, Rod, he let me fight my own fights, and it worked out, you know, I did okay. So that was kind of Rod and I, you know, never looking for trouble, but, you know. But ready to, ready to engage if it ever came across. Well, we, we did what we had to do, and uh, luckily, you know, um, like, Rod, he used to, you know, uh, how old are you? I'm 36. Okay, so there was right on the corner of Windsor Park, and I don't know how familiar you are. I think it's called Can Canada or something, Inns, and it's on the corner of Paterni and Spears. Yeah, 
they they're Canadians. Yeah, there's a there's yeah. a hotel and there's a couple of bars there. Yeah, that's right. So back in the day when Rod and I were there, it was called the Windsorian. Yep. And the Los Bravos biker gang used to hang in there, and Rod was the bouncer. And uh, in all the years that Rod was the bouncing, he never had one fight in there as a bouncer because he didn't care to use muscle and try to fight you and show how dominant he was. He would just say, hey, buddy, come on, it's all over. And he'd just talk yeah. and calm things down. And he was a great bouncer because he never tried to show how tough he was. So he was a bouncer there. But one night, Rod and I were in there, and he said, we've got to have a drink contest between a wrestler and a hockey player. Well, so uh, we'd ordered double vodka grapefruit. <laughs> and so I would drink mine, and when I turned my head, he'd throw his over his shoulder. Oh, God. <laughs> so I, in half hour, I drank six doubles, and Rod didn't have any. Yeah. I wasn't feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> and I only lived one minute away from there, so I said, okay, I'm out of here, Rod State. And uh, there was two guys from another part of town, and uh, there was this skinny basketball player who was engaged and uh, went to our school in Woodson Park, and he came up to Rod, and he said, Rod, I might need some backing. I said, these two guys over there, they're telling me i got to let my fiancé dance with them or they're going to cause trouble with her. Well, let me, they shouldn't do that. So Rod went over politely and said, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. So this is his fiancé. Just give the guy a break. And then Rod sat down again. A little while later, the guy come up and tapped him on the shoulder. So Rod turned his head and Rod's sitting down. And the guy just drilled Rod and knocked him to the floor and then jumped on him. Well, Rod, he could, he was a tough, tough, tough cookie. He, you know, in wrestling, you want to wrestle? Okay. Yeah, here Rod we go. Down and he beat the guy up in there, and then they kicked everybody outside, and then the guy would say, let's go again. So we, you know, we fought Rod again. And, uh, you know, I know Rod. He beat him up pretty good, and then the guy broke his watch, and so Rod went some money out of the guy's pocket to fix his watch. <laughs> But he never he never walked around and uh, played the tough guy role ever ever. It's interesting to hear you talk about how he would, you know, kind of just smooth talk his way through things because that honestly became one of his biggest trademarks through, you know, his whole wrestling career was just his, his verbal skills and how he could just he he could talk anything, he'd talk anyone into a room or out of a room or into a fight or out of a fight. It's, but it's it's so neat to hear that this was happening, you know, at, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. He always, always had that gift. Like, it was a gift. Um, like, he, he, like, he, there wasn't many people that didn't like him, and he treated everybody well. I mean, the nerdy guys in the school, I was never rude to them, but I just walked by him. And Rod would always go to his way and talk to him. And he kind of taught me an awful lot about how to treat people better than I did. And uh, so Rod was a really good role model for me. And another thing that I remember about Rod, and I haven't told many guys this one, 
So that same Windsor as it was called back then. So Rod used to have a white Vega. That was his car. It was, you know, it was a new one, but it wasn't, you know, Vegas aren't good cars. Yeah. And um, so he had a pit bull. And this pit bull, um, he would, uh, well, first of all, he always told me this dog, he, you know, when he was on the road, he was at a motel and he ate this. The guy who owned the motel he killed his German Shepherd. <laughs> oh, man. Jesus. Yeah, he just ate other dogs. And I remember Rob pulled up in front of my house, and he had his back window open. And uh, I had a little black cocker spaniel. And so this, this pit bull jumped into my parents' yard where I lived. And my black cocker spaniel, being territorial, went after the pit bull. Oh, here we go. Turned around and jumped back in the car. <laughs> oh, I started laughing. But uh, so what Rod would do? So when he would go on the road, he'd, you know, like I said, he'd fight in you know different cities, and the rest of if they knew each other, they would travel together, and he would uh, leave his Vega uh, facing. There's a field that used to be behind. I don't know if it's developed right now, but it was a big field back there. And they had like kind of a swampy area. And so he would roll his, his, his passenger window down and he would put food on the bottom of the floor, like a big bag of food, just empty it. Yeah. And, uh, like in the passenger seat of the car? dog there when he would go on the road. <laughs> that dog, just about every time, except the very last time that the dog was gone, he couldn't find him again. He did this like 15 times. That dog would just stay there, jump in and out, jump in and out, and he'd always be there when Rod got back. Yeah. Uh, I remember that. So when when you had started your like junior career, and obviously he's on the road wrestling, were you still able to keep in touch with him at that point as well? Well, he'd come up to Flintflon when I was playing in Flintflon. Yes. And um, sometimes we'd be in different cities. Whether we drive with Swift Court, and if Rod was in town, we'd hook up. Um, but you know, we we stayed in touch, and it was only. And then after I went to Phoenix out of Flintflon, and Rod would come to Phoenix, and we'd hook up. And uh, there was a, probably a period of time where, again, they didn't have cell phones, and we lost track of each other for both. Four years, five, six years, we lost track. And uh, I got sent to the Rangers farm team in New Haven, Connecticut. And there was this poster up, the wrestlers are coming to New Haven. And uh, one was, it said, Roddy Piper. And so we were on the road that night, and uh, I didn't think our team would get back in time for me to connect with Piper. So there was a guy in charge of security for the arena. And I said, listen, Piper's a good buddy of mine. Could you give him my phone number, please? And uh, just let him know. And so he said, sure. So anyways, as it was, Rod, he, when he got my number, he had it down over the PA system in it's called the New Haven Coliseum. He was hoping I was there. And he said, Cap Connor, please meet so-and-so at such such a place. And yeah. within the arena, but I wasn't there. And so the security guy, Rod, wanted to see my 
know, my dressing room. So he let Rod in the dressing room. And so Rod, he took one of my hockey sticks and he had all the wrestlers that night autographed of my hockey stick. Oh, no way. So he left that installed for me with his phone number. So when I got back, we connected again and uh, he brought his girlfriend. Oh, no. Maybe she got, he got married. Maybe he got married. I don't know. Kitty, his wife. Yes. And he brought her out to New York, and uh, you know, so we got to know her a bit, and um, so we never lost track from that point on. Wow, just w- what a crazy set of events, hey, that you would wind up in the same city as him, just randomly on a re- at a and see a wrestling poster, hey, that's so wild. And you know what Rod did too one time. So New York City, they they have. Uh, there's two or three main television stations that everybody watches. And so Rod, you say to me, I told Rod my career is coming to an end and I really wanted to be a coach. And uh, New Haven, Connecticut was only one league below the NHL was American Hockey League. Yes. And I said, you know, I got a, I got a chance to maybe coach that team. I said, they let me coach the last five games of the year because I was hurt and we Got in, uh, I, I won all five games and uh, we did pretty good. And uh, the, the, so so I told Rod, you know, I'm going to try to get a hold of the right people to see if I could have a chance for an interview and try to coach the team. And, and, he, and it was, Rod said to me, well, I'm getting interviewed on the top station in uh, New York City. Watch tomorrow at 5 o'clock. <laughs> I had no idea what's going on. Yeah. So they're asking him about the upcoming matches in Madison Square Garden, and Rod's tilting on his chair. And right in the middle of the interview, he goes, "You know, if they made Cam Connor the coach of the New Haven Nighthawks, he'd be the best coach you should get." That job. <laughs> the guy interviewed me. He said, "What? Because this is live, right?" Yeah. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And I, you know what? I can completely picture in my mind him doing something like that. Like Roddy with a live mic and just. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah he's, uh, he, was, uh, he was, like I said uh, to other people, he was, he was somebody that was really, really good for me in my life. And I, I credit him for giving me a lot of confidence. I came from a, a pretty aggressive household. I didn't have the confidence, and uh, Rod saw the potential in me. And he'd always pat me on the back and make me feel pretty good about myself. And uh, I, I gotta give him credit for me making pro hockey. I really do. So when your when your pro career came to an end, and then you were, because like, I know that you had gotten into assistant coaching after that as well. Like was and that's kind of at the point where he was really on the the big upswing with the WWF. So where was he still, or like I, I'm assuming that you both were in in pretty good contact at that time as well. We how was it for you seeing, like obviously I'm sure he kept tabs on you throughout your NHL career, and I'm I guarantee you he knew all about that double overtime uh, playoff winner, for example. But I, I wonder how it was for you seeing him on that big stage, and then I wonder what he thought about your playing career and seeing all the great moments that you had in your NHL career? Well, you know what? I, I 
kind of interesting that uh, Rod and I never talked about wrestling too much, and we never really talked about hockey too much. Really? You know, I, as you probably know, I got drafted number five in the NHL draft. Yep. And, but I, I didn't have, I told you, I didn't have that confidence. I said, well, somebody must have made a mistake. And, you know, when you get to that top level, you got to have confidence, man. you got to have that confidence. And so when I look back at my career, I had all the potential, but I uh, didn't do nearly as well as I could have. I had the tools. But I never believed in myself. And so that's the only thing I would ever say about my hockey career is that, you know, I should have done better. I had the tools. I never did. And Rod, he uh, he was a little man in a big man sport. Yes. But yet he rose to the occasion. And, uh, you know, I was so proud of him. And I don't the only thing he used to say to me, how come you call me Roddy Piper? He said, why don't you call me by your, you know, my name? You know, you know, we're not wrestling. Why don't you call me by, and I, I never thought of it. I said, I, I, wow. I, you know, he said, I, I just said, I, I don't know why uh, I call you Roddy Piper, but, you know, if you want Rod Tubes, I don't have a problem with Rod yeah. Tubes. So, I stopped calling him Roddy Piper. But yeah, we didn't we didn't really talk too much about what we did. Um, you know, I remember we gave him a, like a tape back at back in the day with the VHS. VHS, yes. And it was all Rod and different highlights that I don't know my wife or my son. Is. Rod should have this, so I gave it to Rod. And he, he didn't get post that. <laughs> he threw it in the trunk. He didn't care. It was just, it was a job, and uh, you know, and it was the same idea with Rod and I. You know, like people used to ask me, say, "Well, you know, did you watch hockey all the time?" And you know, when these games came on, and and I, I said, "No, I never did." Um, because I said, you know, does a mailman go for a walk on his day off? Yeah. And it was kind of like that. Kind of the same concept. And it was the same with Rod. When the time for wrestling, then you focused and you, you did your homework. But, you know, we spent very little time. I mean, if I asked questions about it, you know, we would talk about it. But we had enough in common and we went back a long ways that we didn't have to be superficial just to keep the conversation going, right? Yes. So, and then how how was it for you guys in your in your relationship after because obviously his his wrestling career spanned you know uh 10 or 15 years after your hockey career had ended. How was how was it after his after he was done you know wrestling full time if if you will. I know it's a poor choice of words cuz nobody's ever really done in wrestling but how was it for your guys' relationship after he got out of wrestling? Did it uh, well, was it easier to connect then? Because he was always doing autograph sessions, and he was doing I think it's called Com Com Comcast Com Comic Cons. Yeah. Yes. And so, like for example, he was in uh, Toronto, and he said, "Can you come out and help me?" So he flew me out to Toronto. He was there for three days signing autographs. It was a science fiction one. 
Okay. So they had Leonard Nimoy and. Uh, oh, that must have been the the. Oh, what do they call it? Central Canada, I think. It that's the big one in Toronto. Yeah, and so he was in there, and uh, I, I don't remember their names. Princess Leia. Oh, uh, yeah, Bird. I'm drawing a blank. That yeah, little, that little midget. He's like two foot eight. Vern. Vern Troyer. He was there. Um, like Alice Cooper. Like there was a lot of celebrities, and uh, other than the two, Captain Kirk and Leonard Nimoy. That, that's Spock, is it? Yeah, well, yeah, uh, Spock was Nimoy, and then Shatner was uh, Kirk, yeah. Yeah, okay, so those two, they had the longest lines for autograph. Ron was the next. Everybody else wow. moved away. So well, the first day, you know, we probably, not we, but I, Rod signed, and uh, they had pictures with him. And, and, uh, so we did that for three days, and then uh, he said, well, come on to New York with me. I said, why? You know, they've offered me so much money. My career is over, but I've been offered some big dollars to fight in Madison Square Garden. He said, Rod, you got two can hip replacements. <laughs> he said, I got to do it. He said, it. so anyway, so I went to, I went to uh, New York with him, and uh, it was in Madison Square. And, uh, and uh, John Cena come after me one night. He was going to beat me up. Uh, anyway, that's another story. Well, let's hear that one. I got to hear that one now. So, so Rod needed to get me a pass. So they were really hard to get. And so Rod said, "Well, he played with the Rangers. He knows that. Okay, we'll give him a pass." So I put the pass on my thigh, on my pants. And so I got to go down. You know, just where the hockey players would go into the dressing room. I, I stood outside, not in the hallway, but just out of the way by myself, and I didn't have. And uh, so the wrestlers all change in the, in the same dressing room. Yep. And so Cena was up next. And you could tell, you know, with that kind of a pump on, you know, he's done steroids. He's a, and I think that's affected the guy. Because when I see him on TV now, he's got the big smile, nice guy. But so I'm standing way off to the side. And I see him pacing up and down, not, not you know, before he was going out. And so then he spots me, then he puts his head down, and he walks over and he bumps into me. He says, what the fuck are you doing in my way? He said, I ought to kick the shit out of you. I said, I'm a friend of Rod's. I said, I'm just waiting for him. Get out of here. He said, when I finish this match, if you're still here, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. Jesus. And so, you know what? I mean, I'm, I was like 55 years old. And, you know, if I was that teenager again, I might have been stupid. (laughs) I just knew I I couldn't have a chance against him. And so he was out, and I didn't see him come back. He wasn't back yet. Then Rod came out of the dressing room. He said, well, come out of the dressing room. I said, is he going to be in there? He said, yeah, he said, he'll be in there. I said, is he in there now? He goes, no. I said, well, you're going to kick the shit out of him. He said, you'll be okay. Come out of the dressing room. All right, so I go in the dressing room and I'm sitting next to this great big black wrestler. He's like 550 pounds, big guy. Oh, would that have been Mabel? Maybe I don't remember. And so I'm sitting next to him, nice man. He's talking to me, and I think John Cena come in. He said, "Why?" And I kind of told him the story. And he said, "If he sees me again, he's gonna come after me." He said, "You just stick near me." He says, "I'll protect you." I said, "You will." 
yeah, I said, okay. So <laughs> I remember John wasn't back yet, and this big fellow had to go take a piss. I almost went with him. <laughs> said, well, maybe I better go with you. I, you know. So, anyways, as it worked, the work out. Seen her come in the dressing room, and he looked at me, right? But he didn't do anything. So, anyway, but he got my attention. I can tell you that. Yeah, maybe he uh, maybe he calmed down a little bit whenever he was on there. Well, maybe he didn't see this path. He just thought I was a fan. He shouldn't be back there. Oh, yeah, that's true, too, yeah. So, and then after, I remember Rod and I, we took a limo. We went back to the hotel right across from LaGuardia Airport. And uh, his buddy Ric Flair was there. So, Rod and I and Ric Flair, we went down and had some beers together. Really nice man. I really enjoyed that. And, uh, I still got all those pictures of Rod and, and Com Com. What do you call it? Com Comic Con, yeah. Comic Con. I got a bunch of pictures from then, and uh, and then like with Rod and I and and Flair. And so I just actually came across those the other day. Nice So, anyways, yeah. So Rod and I, we stayed in touch uh, during and after. And then, in fact. He was writing his book, and uh, he phoned me up, and he said, Hey, can I come to Edmonton, and uh, I'm bringing my ghostwriter, my, my writer, because I can't remember any of our stories going up. And could you, you maybe tell some of the stories? I said, Sure. Wow. So we were, he was here for three days. So I'd hook up with him and his writer, and then... Uh, he went to Calgary after that to see Bret Hart, but Bret, he didn't let Bret know he was coming. And Bret was flying off somewhere, so he went back to Portland, and Rod phoned me a few days later, and he said, uh, you know what, I think it was Wednesday, he said, let's talk again on Friday, and then he died Thursday night. Jeez. So, like I said, I went to his, to his funeral in Portland, and uh, it was kind of interesting because the WWE at the time, they were in Portland, so Rod lived outside, I think it's called Hillsboro, and so there was a number of the wrestlers that came to his funeral, and I've never seen such big men in suits like I standing behind some guy, his shoulders must have been like five feet across, like, <laughs> I guess he he would have missed then at that point your induction in the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame then, right? 
the well when I went up to make my speech, uh, as I said, I said just uh, and I think it was um, Rod died at the end of July of 2015. So I think it was just a month or two after is when this was done. Yeah, I was going to say I thought it was September is when they did that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds right, August, September, yeah. And as I said, I said you know. I had a good friend of mine, Rod Toos, a.k.a. Rowdy Roddy Piper, who was going to join me today for this honor. I said, but unfortunately, he just died a couple months ago. Because he was planning on coming, so, you know, he bought the table. So that would have been nice. Yeah, I can... I'm sure that he would have been you know, as thrilled as you were to be in, because it's, I know that that, it's a big honor first off to just get inducted, but I'm sure it would have meant a lot, you know, considering how you guys, you know, grew up together and somehow through the luck of whatever higher power you want to say, just keep running into each other. And even like you just said, that story about, you're in Vegas and you see his name on a marquee. Like it's just, it's fate that, that you guys were just connected by fate. It's crazy. Yeah. And you know, the one thing that was really good is that, you know, like when Rod and I were just teenagers, we had nothing money wise. I had nothing money wise. We were just friends. We were just friends. And we used to, like I said, street fight and do a bunch of shit together just as friends. And, you know, quite often, when you get to be famous, all of a sudden people want to party you. And uh, Rod never really knew who his friends were. You know, did he like me because I'm Rowdy Piper? And he always said, you know what? You're my friend, and I know that. And that was comforting to him. Yes. Because, you know, like he, he, he like when he got... But it was comforting to him. So he always knew that I, I was his buddy for not because he was Roddy Piper. And that's one of the downsides about, you know, the professional wrestling industry back then for sure. But I don't know that it's changed very much now is, you know, it's it's a lot of paranoia, both you know, self-inflicted and and put upon you by others, and you just, like yeah. you said, you you really don't know who your friends are, and there's so so many instances throughout history of, you know, the backstabbing and the politics and the yeah. uh, all the zabada, and I could just I can, you know, visualize in my mind how something like that would affect someone like Roddy, who again, like we've been talking about, is such a just an easygoing, like smooth yeah. individual, and just yeah. you know, if you 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 just don't know. So I I could for sure see how he would find comfort in an actual connection with yourself. Yeah, and it's no different than I'll just I use hockey as an example. I know, you know, even when I played, we made better money than the average guy did. And uh, the guys today make really crazy numbers. And you just never know when you, let's say you're single and you meet a girl. 
Did they really like me because I'm such a good guy? They fell in love with me? Or because I could offer them a good lifestyle? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's kind of like what athletes have to think about. Right? Have to think about that. And so Rod, he had his share of people using him and trying to use him. And he'd rather be by himself. And and I don't blame him. Yeah, because there's so many horror stories in, you know, especially wrestling of guys who just, you know, they get blood dry by all these grifters who just hang on and hang on and hang on until there's nothing left. And then then they're, they're gone. You never see them again. And it's such a shame. Rod told me one time, you know, like he said, the promoters are very dishonest. Yes. That's one thing that I've come to realize during the course of this program. And so what he told me, he said, do you ever see Cam when I go into the ring and not only me, the other wrestlers, because they got to have showmanship, right? Yes. So he says he gets in before the match and uh, he'll walk to one, because there's obviously four sides of a ring. He'd walk to one side and look up into the stand. And then he'd go to the other side and he'd look in. And he said, you know why I'm doing that? I said, yeah, you're giving the, you know, the fans dirty looks. He goes, no. He said, I'm, we're counting the number of empty seats. Because the promoter, we get paid a portion of the... Of the, of the gate. The gate, and if he said, "Oh, it was hardly anybody there," he said, "We've already looked ourselves." Yeah, we counted. So that's why they go to all four sides just to look at the fans. Yeah, and I've I've heard many many stories of of, uh, of guys doing that. You know, in the eighties for sure, in the nineties, just because you they they didn't know, and at, at that point they were paid so heavily by the gates where you're you're messing with their money when you're doing that. Yeah, so, you know, so, you know, Rod had a great career, and I think, you know, he, a big part of his success, as you said, was that he could talk, and he could think on his feet, and uh, his interviews, and uh, the paper pits, and in the, in the ring, talking in the mic, that was all, you know, it was, it just, the stuff that would come right from inside of him, it was, he was a natural at it and uh, never ceased to amaze me, like never did. It's funny you mentioned the Piper's Pit. So I think he started that in what, the mid-80s yep. and, and we're in 2022 and they're still trying to do the same thing. Like that's that's how influential it was and that's how much of an impact just, I'm obviously his entire career is is extremely impressive but when you when you start boiling down certain parts of his story like just that one alone they're still trying to you know retcon that one and figure out how why it was so successful and how it worked but really it boils down to it was successful because it was roddy 100 percent, 100 percent. oh yeah rod you know like i said he was good with me over the years like when i worked in new york city after my career was over he would come into New York City, and uh, he almost got me fired a couple times from work. Holy! <laughs> like, we would stay out too late, and I got to go to work, and he'd still be in bed. And uh, I, I, I don't even know if I want to tell you some of those stories, but yeah, but you know, he was um, 
remember one day he pulled me up in his landing in New Jersey and he said, I'm coming into New York City. And uh, he said, book me a limo. I said, okay. So I phoned up a limo and I said, pick up Marty Piper at such and such a time. He goes, okay. He said, but he's not going to wreck my limo, is he? <laughs> And I remember Rod and I in New York City, we, uh, I said, well, we'll try this club. And so it was hard to get in a lot of the popular clubs. So we would never try to walk to the front of the line and say, do you know who we are? We never did anything like that. We'd stand in line. Yeah. We'd stay just for a little while. And I remember the bouncers would walk down the line. And if you're a pretty girl, he'd say, oh, yeah, you can go in. Yeah, you, yeah, lift the, lift the deal. When uh, Rod and I were standing in line and then they get to uh, Rod, they go, Roddy Piper, oh, yeah, you guys go right in, go right to the front. Wow. So then we went in this private club. There was a private club within the private club. <laughs> so, so they said, no, no, you guys go in that private club. Yeah, <laughs> and go in the other one. <laughs> all night long. And, yeah. Uh, like I said, I had to work the next day, which I probably should have phoned in sick, but uh, Rod, bad influence. <laughs> no, you're a good Winnipegger. You never phone in sick when you're hungover. You just get in there and pound some coffee and get through your day. Well, I did, but it was pretty hard. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, anyways, I've talked to your ops, so... Really should let you go, but anyways, I don't know if I've answered your questions or. No, this has been tremendous. Uh, like I said, I just you can you read or you can read, you know, depending on the source. Some of them are better than others, but you can read, you know, articles and and whatever about you know Roddy wrestled here, he did this, he did that. But yeah. there's nobody has ever taken the time I feel to really you know look look at who he was, you know, not just outside the ring, but also before that. So this has been very, very eye-opening. Well, again, you know, I was fortunate enough that uh, we just, we had enough in common and uh, we both had a little bit of wild streak and we both could be trusted with each other. Like he knew I would never, ever lie. I always had his back and I knew he had my back. If I was losing the fight, he never had to jump in, but I knew he would. If he needed, he yeah. Me, he would let me take a few shots before he got <laughs> in. But, you know, so, you know, and that's the thing. We went back as kids, and that was a bond. And uh, we had that bond our whole life, you know, our whole life. And I can... I, I still miss him. I can tell it. Just, I can I can hear it in your voice, and I, I, I completely understand. It's... Uh, a friendship like that is just something that just it just transcends everything and i i'm just so grateful that you two just were able to find each other in this in you know life is hard enough right to and and for you two to find each other a real quality friend in each other it just that's that's incredible that's like that in itself is what a great story is yeah you know and and you know rod gave me well he got halfway through the book and then he died. So, he, so the the writer had his son and daughter add to it. Yes. And so they gave me a copy of the book, and it's actually just about three feet away from me. And um, you know, it, it was a lot of nice things that was said 
about me by Rod. And, uh, you know, like one of the things in his book, he said that something like uh, when they came to Edmonton, he said, you know, Rod just lit and read up like he's never lit up with any of his other friends that we talked to. And, and again, it was that trust knowing I got his back his whole life, but I only liked him, you know, just because of who he was and not, not, not like the Roddy Piper, but the Rod Toombs. That, yes. That, that those are the buddies, you know. Way back well, listen, I I really really appreciate you know getting to know a little bit more about him through you and uh, yeah this this has been absolutely tremendous. Oh, good, I'm glad you liked it. Before we head into the next segment of tonight's program, my conversation with wrestler and wrestling historian Vance Nevada, I'm going to play some more classic Rowdy Roddy Piper promo material now earlier in this episode you've heard fired up roddy you've heard crazy roddy you've heard the stories about how crazy roddy really could be but there is another side to roddy piper and i think that this promo that i'm going to play for you guys right now although it is a long one i will forewarn everybody but it may be one of the greatest instances of real-life Roddy flushing himself out in a wrestling ring. So I'm going to play this classic Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, material. This comes from the WWE in a program with fellow uh, Winnipeg alumni Chris Jericho. So please enjoy this a little bit of Roddy Piper audio. Once again, it's a little bit long, but I think it's really going to set the tone especially considering the conversation that uh, Vance and myself have coming up regarding, you know, kind of the evolution of Roddy Piper and especially how later on in life he really let himself be himself, if that makes sense. I think when you hear my conversation with Vance, uh, that statement is going to ring a lot more true. So once again... Please enjoy this uh, classic Roddy Piper audio. Once again, it is a little bit long. However, I think it's the perfect way to illustrate uh, kind of what we're leading into with my conversation with Vance. And on the other side of that audio, my interview with wrestling historian Vance Nevada. The Academy Awards are this Sunday. And if any of the members of the Academy are watching, I implore you to not vote for Mickey Rourke for Best Actor. Because if you do, it could spark a chain reaction that has terrible consequences on this business. You see, if Rourke wins, that could send a message to all of the Hall of Famers, all of the legends, all of the washed up, has-been losers who are holding on, leeching off this business, begging for one last run at success. But I'm here to say that's not going to happen. They're very delusional about this, but the truth is, it won't happen. And the only one with enough courage to tell them so is me. But I know why all of you respect the legends so. Why you cheer for them, why you encourage them, why you enable them. It's because they're all just like you. Weak, shallow, insecure human beings hypocrites and liars 
who need to be shut down and shut up for their own good. And you can boo me if you want, but you're booing an honest man. A man who tells the truth. Yeah, you don't like that, do you? But the truth hurts. And I will continue to tell the truth. That... Hey! It's a it is! Talk about legends! <laughs> it is really Roddy Roddy Piper! WWE Hall of Famer! For Rowdy Roddy Piper. that somewhere Mickey Rourke is watching this. You want the truth? I'm going to shoot with you on this one. Let me tell you something, man. You know, I have watched you your entire career and I liked you. I tell you why. You said what was on your mind. And then you had the guts to come in the ring and back it up. I respected that. Reminded me of somebody I know. What happened? Now, you get on television, and you're running your mouth. You're calling me out. You're calling Flair out. You're calling the other legends out. You used to be entertaining. What happened? You're judging us. You patronize us. You tell us what we should be and should not be doing. Let me take one of your quotes. Please shut the hell up. <laughs> sure, Piper. Dance like a puppet on the string. Make all of these fans cheer for you. I'm not finished yet! Mickey Rourke is my friend. And I watched his movie, The Wrestler. And yes, I cried. The movie is not about a bunch of old-timers that want another run. The movie 
is about the honor and respect we have for everyone. The movie is about the pain physically and emotionally. And most of all, most important, why we do what we do for the thrill of performing. Rick Flair was right. We live for this. I have people that come up to me and they say to me, Hey, Roddy, we remember when you slapped Mr. T. And I have people come up to me and say, when my granddad was alive, we watched you, we watched you shave Adrian Adonis's head. And Chris, you want to bury these moments. No, these moments are to be celebrated. These moments, last year, I was in the Royal Rumble, and when I came out in Madison Square Garden, 24,000 people jumped to their feet, and just for one second, Chris, I felt like I was back in the first WrestleMania. That was, that was the thrill of a lifetime for me. hip and I hurt all the time but as long as these folks here say so I will crawl down here on my hands and knees to give them one more memorable moment because old school's cool All right, very pleased to be joined on the line this evening by wrestling historian and possibly the most wrestling savant in terms of Western Canadian wrestling that I possibly have ever run into in uh, this crazy world of podcasting, uh, Mr. Vance Nevada. Vance, how are you doing? I'm great. It's, uh, it's glad to, I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm very happy to have you on the program. And uh, I actually was... Uh, talking to many people who know of you and know you as well, and uh, it's your name that kept coming up, kept coming up throughout uh, the first year of the program. It just, one of those things where it never, peace never quite fit, but I'm very happy to be having you on uh, season two here to talk some uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah, that sounds great. It's a, it's a topic that I love to discuss. So for anybody who's sitting at home and is not familiar with yourself, can you just give a little bit of backstory about uh, yourself and then your yourself in terms of professional wrestling? Sure. Uh, 
Sure. Well, you know what? I, I got my start as a prairie kid from Surris, Manitoba. Uh, started wrestling in Winnipeg in 1993, and then in 2001, uh, my first opportunity to tour nationally came up. And uh, you know, since that time, you know, I've uh, over the course of my career I've wrestled more than 1,500 matches from coast to coast in Canada and a little bit in the United States. Um, have written two books on the history of professional wrestling. Uh, and I've done almost every job there is to do in wrestling, from, from wrestling to managing to promoting to writing television um, and, and, and even training guys as well. And in terms of the books, because I, I want to get a little bit more in-depth into that, because these are essentially historical Bibles that you've written. Uh, the first one, that would be a very generous uh, <laughs> uh, explanation of the book. So... You know, what, what happened for me is, you know, when you get into wrestling as a, as a teenager and you're a big fan, um, you know, you think you know everything about wrestling. And, uh, you know, and, and like a teenager, you think you know everything about everything, really. And uh, when I got into the, I had been wrestling about a year, and uh, the gentleman that had initially given me my start was an was a old Frenchman from Somerset, Manitoba, named Ernest Rowe. And Ernest... Uh, was a, a pipeline worker by trade. Uh, you know, he was kind of like a part-time promoter, um, but his his credentials as a as a wrestler and trainer were, I would say, highly inflated. And <laughs> because he was he was so well liked, people just allowed him to do that. Um, but uh, you know, they had, they had made a reference. I never been able to find any records. You know, I'd seen a few matches. Um, you know, on the independence with with Ernest Rowe wrestling, but. Other than a handful of matches, I couldn't find anything. And about a year in, uh, a guy doing television commentary on one of my matches said, "That's and I was trained by Ernie Rowe, who was a partner with Frenchie Champagne uh, in the old Madison Club in Winnipeg. And I'd never heard of the Madison Club. I'd never heard of Frenchie Champagne. Uh, and being 18 years old, I thought, well, he must not be a big deal because I know everything about wrestling yeah. and I've never heard of him. <laughs> But it, it piqued my curiosity, and that's, uh, you know, it sort of began. So the summer of 1994, uh, every time I'd go into Winnipeg for the wrestling matches, I'd go in early and spend my days in the Winnipeg archives uh, going through old microfilm. Uh, and, and it was just sort of like the tip of the iceberg. So that summer I found out that Frenchie Champagne, you know, from the 1950s to the 1970s in Manitoba was a huge deal. Yes. Uh, you know, he was like a headliner on the local shows, but he also refereed when the big shows would come in from Minneapolis. Uh, he did a little bit of promoting, and some of the first shows that he promoted included a young Roddy Piper. Um, and uh, and that just sort of got the ball rolling. And then I thought, well, I should, geez, I should do a book about Winnipeg wrestling. And then I would be get so far along, and I'd be waiting on some information. I thought, well, you know, maybe I should uh, expand into Saskatchewan, because certainly not a lot happened there. <laughs> uh, and next thing you know, now you know today I st I'm still collecting on those those results and making sure that everything is documented. From 1876 to now, I've recorded more than 5,800 pages of results. Jesus, uh, which amounts to more than 55,000 shows. That's incredible. Yeah. So. Um, you know, the first book was just kind of like an effort to get something out, uh, really was focused, you know, primarily on, on Manitoba, uh, well, the Prairie Provinces, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. 
the second book expanded uh, to include British Columbia, and uh, you know, it was another ten years for that book to come out, and it was much more in depth, uh, a lot more road stories from wrestlers themselves. And now this one has been, uh, you know, I never thought that I would do another book, and then the pandemic hit, and uh, there was nothing going on. So I, so well, I can't really go out and do anything in public. Can't wrestle. I, you know, the, the orders are to stay at home and to sit around by yourself. Uh, so I dove into working on a national history for professional wrestling in Canada, um, which, uh, you know, very similar to the beginning. It's like, oh, well, you know what, based on what I've got started, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's been a monster um, you know, to put together. I mean, if you consider that, you know, in Ontario alone, from 1990 to the present, they've had more than 72 promotions. Yeah, operate. it's, it's crazy. Yeah, so then, you you know, we multiplied that by 10 provinces, um, you know, over the last 10 years. And uh, But anyway, I'm, I'm very happy with how it's taking shape, and I think that, uh, you know, in terms of wrestling fans and, and wrestling insiders, uh, it's going to be sort of the ultimate argument settler on anything Canadian wrestling um, that, that delves not only into the stories, but also uh, the complete title histories for more than 600 championships uh, in Canada. Um, you know, stats, including, you know, the top 50 houses of all time in Canada, the top drawing wrestlers, uh, the most prolific wrestlers, men, women, and tag teams, uh, you know, and, and, you know, other, you know, interesting facts, you know, the, the first ever battle royal, the first ever cage match, the first ever intergender match, those types of things. So a lot of, a lot of information in there, and uh, every time I think that I'm done, I think, oh, geez, I should have this other thing. <laughs> I have a feeling that people are going to be very surprised to hear some of the attendance figures, especially because uh, that's kind of the overwhelming, you know, thought about wrestling in Canada. You know, oh, the, there's not many people there, and the buildings aren't that big. But uh, I think people are going to be very surprised. Yeah, you know what? The wrestling has eclipsed, uh, you know, houses of ten thousand people more than four hundred times. Yeah, it's crazy. And, uh, you know, some of those some of those top houses, you know, uh, are very competitive with some of the big cities in the United States. So uh, I'm very excited to be able to share that that aspect of the business in, in Canada. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, 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 to being able to make that announcement that it's uh, officially available to order. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that, and uh, I can't wait to get my hands on that. You're, I'm just salivating. Hey, just like, hearing all the stats that I can read. To just that's what I'm. I'm here for it. Let's do it. Yeah, uh, I think you know one of the things that I think I'm really really excited about is you know a lot of times when you will read a wrestling book, and this isn't a dig on it, on anybody that's written one because there's certainly a lot of work that goes into it, but. You'll have, uh, you know, the certain marquee stars, you know, like the, the Hart family and the Rougeau family and Whipper Billy Watson. They get a lot of press. And uh, then you'll have, you know, guys like Eric Froelich and Moose Murawski and Dave Rule um, that, you know, were, were real workhorses in their day and, and never seemed to get as much press. And there's a few guys in particular, um, you know, that are going to be spotlighted in this new book that I've never seen any press on who had impressive, you know, 30-year careers, um, 
that uh, you know, I just just excited to share a little bit of news on these guys that deserve some credit and have not got it yet. And that was always my idea. Uh, naturally, a, a podcast is a little bit less. Well, a little bit. That's kind of a understatement. <laughs> Labor intensive than you know compiling all of this information and trying to sort through what would make it, what wouldn't, and whatever. But the the crux of the program is always to, you know, shed some spotlight on some people who may otherwise, you know, be lost to the sands of time. Or in the case of Piper, someone who, yes, many people know, you know, the quote-unquote Piper story, but many people don't understand the Piper story. Agreed. And, and, and that's where, uh, like, people like yourself... Uh, others that I've had uh, that have been joining me on the, on this uh, program really are shedding some light onto who was Roddy Piper. Yes, we've seen the you know the WWE biography. It was it was what it was. It was you know okay, but so much of so much of what is out there is is the you know the pasteurized, the homogenized the. Uh, the just it's you're getting the bare bones or you're not getting the actual meat of the matter and uh absolutely and really that's what i i I can't wait to dig into uh with yourself for for this evening so in terms of yourself what would have been your first introduction to roddy piper then what i was uh you know a kid you know know, 10 years old nine years old or something like that when the first wrestlemania happened so that all that hype that went into the first wrestlemania with you know, MTV and Cindy Lauper and yes. Roddy Piper, you know, was like all wrapped up in that. Uh, and so, you know, that was my first introduction to, to Piper. And I think, you know, you, you know, I was kind of aware of him and he was a villain. And, you know, being a kid, you don't really, you know, key in on the villains as much. Uh, but, you know, a couple of years later, when I learned that, wait a minute, this guy that's being built from Glasgow, Scotland, is actually from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yeah. Okay, now now you've got my full attention, you know, because here's a guy that, uh, you know, when you you know you see him headlining the first WrestleMania, wow, that's incredible that a kid from Winnipeg, Manitoba, headlined WrestleMania, Um, you know, and then you realize that you know when he started, he started as a 160 pound kid, which at 17 years old, I'm 160 pounds wrestling in Winnipeg, Manitoba, like maybe maybe the Roddy Piper story could be my story. Yes. You know, there's something very relatable about that to me. Um, and, you know, just, you know, over the years, particularly learning, you know, what what makes a good wrestling heel, uh, you know, the ability to talk people into seats, uh, you know, all of those things combined to make Piper one of those guys that was just like on my, you know, all-time fave list. So as you kind of got introduced to him and kind of watched his career progress uh, for yourself, how much did that influence kind of your direction in wrestling? I think, you know, when I began, it, it was just sort of that first glimmer of hope because, you know, it, 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 the business in 1993 is much different than it is today. Uh, and even then, it was much different than it was two decades prior to that. But, uh, you know, in 1993, guys under 200 pounds weren't common in professional wrestling. You know, it was kind of, you know, this, like, unwritten rule that if you're under 235 pounds, you're too small to be a wrestler. Yes. Uh, And so I came in the door at 160 pounds, 
uh, and I was cannon fodder for the first six months of my of my career. Um, you know, I was getting pummeled, and you know, it wasn't because they hated me. Uh, it was just the way the industry was. Yeah. It, was, it was designed to try to discourage guys that they didn't think were going to make it, uh, and so they did their best to to run me off. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, just kept coming back. And so after about a year, they said, "Well, geez, you know, he's not going away." We better teach him something, and uh, that—that's really you know when my my wrestling education kind of began. I mean, they kind of taught me enough that I could get through a match without breaking my neck. But then it wasn't really until you know six months to a year in where they're like, "Well, now we, we better actually invest in this guy now." Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. For, for myself, um, same thing, right? You you don't realize he's from winnipeg until you you hear rumblings because you know back in the you know even the early 90s still kayfabe was king so you you don't get it and then you start hearing it and then okay he's from here like this guy's from here right so for us growing up you know kids of the mid 80s early 90s to see somebody from here make it to the big times was super impressive but it's you know, I think, you know, Roddy Piper is a guy that is, you know, even when I had the opportunity to work with him later in his career, um, is a guy that has very carefully and craftily created his own myth. Yes. And, um, and you know, he's, he's told that story over and over and over to the point where I believe that he thinks that it is true. Uh, I think that the number one myth out there uh, is the story of his debut match. Uh, and so this this is a story that he has told repeatedly about his first ever match being at the Winnipeg Arena against Larry the Axe Henning uh, and losing in about eight seconds. That match did happen, uh, but that match happened about two years after his career had started. Yes. Um, his first match was at a community center in Winnipeg against Tony Candelo. Uh, in June 1972. Uh, and so you think, well, you know what, maybe he uh, chalked it up as, well, I don't count those those early matches for Tony Candelo uh, because they were sort of like on the independence, and it wasn't independent at that time. Candelo was outlaw. Yes. Um, you know, if you weren't, if you weren't with, you know, the major, uh, you know, NWA or AWA organizations, you were an outlaw promoter and Candelo opened as an outlaw promoter in direct defiance of the AWA. And so maybe, you know, you think, well, maybe he didn't want to count that. He wanted to count his first pro match. Um, but his match with Larry Henning wasn't even his first AWA match. Surprisingly for most people, Piper's first AWA match was at Winnipeg Arena against Ric Flair. Jeez. So I think that's, that's kind of myth number one. Uh, you know, myth number two in his in his first book uh, that he uh, he published, um, you know, he credits Al Tomko with being the guy that broke him into professional wrestling, uh, and it wasn't Al Tomko; it was Tony Candelo. Okay, so, so and and this is something I, I really am fascinated with, and I, I really want to, and just so everybody listening at home is, we're not we're not trying to shoot holes through his story for fun or, or anything like that. yeah we're just clearing up portions of the story that are like you you said you know myths that he has told that have gone 
repeated through years and then get amplified, obviously, with with um, retellings, if you will, by others. But the Candela one is I'm fascinated with, and I really want to dig deep on this one with you. Yeah. So the you know to sort of to sort of understand uh, how big of a deal that 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 piece is um, in 1971. Tony Candelo, uh, you know, was a wrestler. Uh, he'd been wrestling around Winnipeg for about you know ten or eleven years, and he had also um, uh, done some some uh, preliminary work for the AWA. So he'd go down to Minneapolis and and wrestle on TV, and you know, lose matches to the Vachon brothers or whoever were the big stars of Minneapolis. And aside from that, Candelo uh, by trade was a hairdresser. That's correct. Yes. So uh, Tony Candelo is a businessman. He's running his salons in Winnipeg. He sees an opportunity, and he sort of hears through the grapevine that Vern Gagne in Minneapolis is unhappy with Al Tomko in Winnipeg. So he makes his intentions known through Wally Carbo that he wants to take over as the Winnipeg agent for the AWA. So Wally Carbo says, that's great. We'll set up a meeting with Vern, come down to TV in Minneapolis on whatever day. And uh, we'll discuss it. Now, while Vern, uh, while Tony Candela is on the phone with Wally Carbo, one of the local wrestlers around Winnipeg at that time, a man named Dave Muir, overheard the conversation uh, and stooged off to Al Tomko that Candela was making a play yeah, for his He was making spot. plays, yeah. So Al Tomko, in retaliation, called Vern Gagne and said, listen, you don't want to do business with this guy. He's connected with the Montreal Mafia. And then on top of that, called ahead to the border and let them know, hey, this guy's coming across to work without a work visa. So Candelo shows up at the border to go for his meeting with Vergania. He gets turned back at the border. At that time, he just thinks, oh, whatever, I'll just go to a different border crossing, not realizing that these people talk to each other. Yeah, that they've, uh, and he's been stooged. Now he's been turned back twice, goes back home, and he is bitter. Uh, talks to Wally Carbo on the phone. Wally, uh, in the meantime, identifies, hey, man, the damage has been done. You've been identified as connections to the mafia. Verngania wants nothing to do with you. So not only did he lose out on becoming the Winnipeg agent for the AWA, he also lost out on any bookings for the AWA, when, even when they came to Canada. Yes. So Candelo, uh, you know, being bitter, he's been shut out, uh, decides, well, you know what, I'm going to open a wrestling school, uh, and I'm going to run opposition. Um, the wrestling school, you know, really, up until that point, there really wasn't such a thing as an organized wrestling school. Um, you, you almost, you know, had to get vouched in, like mafia. Yeah. They know somebody. Uh, and so it was almost like a on-the-job apprenticeship to get into wrestling. But Candelo decided to open a school. So he did some newspaper advertisements. Actually, initially he had... Uh, um, Whipper Billy Watson's son, Phil, uh, advertised as uh, involved as one of the trainers. Uh, and in that first class, one of the guys was Roddy Piper. Um, so Piper wrestled with Candelo for about a year, year and a half. Uh, and then he had an opportunity to go work for the AWA. Now, this is, this is how significant this is. In, in the 50s and 60s, Winnipeg had a thriving local wrestling scene. You had a lot of clubs uh, operating. The Madison Club out of St. Boniface, the Crescent Club running downtown. There was a couple up in like the Brooklyn's north northwest area of the city. 
1966. You know, they were doing okay, but they might be only drawing 1,000 people or 1,200 people at the Winnipeg Civic Auditorium. Meanwhile, the local club show that had been established in St. Boniface was drawing 800 a week. Yeah. So Vern Gagne saw it as opposition, so he, he, he told Al Tomko, listen, offer these local guys spots on the, the, uh, the auditorium shows. Um, it's going to cost you 40 bucks, and we're going to get them licensed, uh, and this is going to kill our competition. Because what happened is the local club shows were being run as uh, semi-professional, meaning that they were able to skate past commission regulations. The promoters didn't have to be licensed, and the wrestlers didn't have to be licensed. They were considered amateur. But as soon as they did one match for the AWA and got a license as a professional wrestler, they couldn't wrestle on those amateur shows anymore. So effectively, by taking the, the top guys like Bobby Jones, Bruce Murawski, you know, even Tony Candelo, and allowing them to wrestle at the Winnipeg uh, Civic Auditorium, now they were done. They couldn't go back to doing local shows. And now they so, can't go anywhere else either because in, at that point, the AWA is the only, only game in town here. They're shut out. So um, the, the idea, and in, in Piper's second book uh, that, that he started to write and then he passed away and his kids finished the book, they make the assertion that Candelo and Al Tomko, uh, you know, were, were amicable and they were sharing talent and Piper was training at both. It's just not possible. Uh, because of the heat between Candelo and Tomko at the time. And even if you talk to Tony Candelo to this day, you know, 50 years after the fact, he still can't say a kind word about Al Tomko. So you know, that that's kind of a big deal. But where Al Tomko was influential in Piper's early career is you know, Tomko booked Piper for the AWA, took him down to Minneapolis for his first exposure to the AWA in the United States, and also helped to get him across the border when he went to Kansas City, uh, which was a starting point because then he went from Kansas City to, to Texas, uh, to California, to Portland. Uh, and those were all launching points before he went to the Carolinas and Georgia and became a big star. So before we kind of jump in into that portion of the conversation, there's just one aspect about the Tony Canelo story that I want to circle back to because, uh, again, this is something that has either gone unreported or is misreported, or is, you know, mythified, or however you want to pronounce it. But sure. So, in addition to, obviously, his wrestling background and what he was doing in terms of uh, a business um, acumen, uh, Tony Canelo, was, he was a boxer as well, right? An amateur boxer? No. He wasn't? No. Tony, uh, Tony is a... As a kid, he had immigrated to Canada during World War II when a lot of Italians were escaping uh, Europe because of uh, all of the activity that was happening there with the Nazis in Italy. Uh, so he came to Canada uh, not speaking a word of English uh, you know, in the 1940s uh, as a kid and got into a lot of fights uh, because at that time, I mean, people have heard the term WAP. Uh, sort of a derogatory term yeah. uh, about Italians. Well, WAP stands for without papers. Uh, and what that meant at that time was if you came to Canada as an Italian and people wanted to sort of get your dander up, they would call you a WAP, saying that you're without papers, meaning you're a man without a country. 
uh, you know, you don't belong here and you don't belong there. And so that would fire up, you know, Candelo and he would get in lots of fights in school. Uh, but he was a small guy, still was a small guy. And so as a result, um, you'd get in these fights and get his butt kicked a lot. So he went down to the uh, Winnipeg YMCA and there was an amateur wrestler down there, uh, a guy by the name of Alfred Wurr, uh, who was an amateur wrestling champion. Uh, and he trained with Alf as an amateur uh, wrestler and uh, did, a, did a few tournaments. Um, and that's when uh, a gentleman named Joe Fiorino, another Italian wrestler from Winnipeg, who was, who was working on those club shows in Winnipeg in the 60s, uh, said, hey, Tony, why don't you give pro wrestling a try? Tony's like, pro wrestling? Why do I want to do that phony shit? <laughs> um, but, you know, that was his introduction, and he started wrestling as a, as a middleweight wrestler, uh, you know, on the, on the club shows in Winnipeg, and, uh, and moved on from that. The reason I brought up Tony and boxing is also the story of Roddy Piper and a, and a boxing Golden Gloves Maybe he had won those. Maybe he hadn't won those. Like, and this is something as well that is kind of talked about, but not really expanded upon, or maybe glossed over, or maybe exemplified, if you will, for lack of a better term. But what were you yeah. able to find out, and what's what's the story behind the story of Roddy Piper being a Golden Gloves boxer? Uh, Piper's Golden Gloves boxing career. Uh, from anything that I've been able to find is fictional. Um, I think that later on, uh, particularly, you know, as he started to expand more uh, in Canada, but I would say even more so when he got to Los Angeles, uh, you know, and working with guys like uh, Gene LaBelle um, and, and training there as he started to sort of put on masks, probably you saw more of his boxing skills there. Um, what I suspect happened is, um, you know, Piper was a small guy, and, and a small guy in professional wrestling was pretty uncommon back um, then, for sure. You know, particularly you know when you were when you were striving to be a big name. However, you know, if you think even today, you know, some of the biggest money boxers like Floyd Money Mayweather or Sugar Ray Leonard, um, these are big money guys, but they're small guys. And so for Piper to get into professional wrestling uh, without an amateur background, the easiest story to tell and have stick and have people believe would be, well, I'm a, I'm a Golden Gloves boxer. Uh, because he had the size and stature of someone that could potentially be a boxer. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, with uh, in, in, in the pre-internet age, lots of people have made claims about credentials they had in Canada and, and within the industry we laugh a lot because we run into people at different times and when they hear you're a wrestler they'll say oh yeah I, I also wrestled I wrestled for Stu Hart uh, in Stampede because that circuit ran for so long uh, and there was no formal record book anywhere it's easy for people to skate on that lie and not get caught yeah um, you know, there was a, a guy uh, he's, he's originally from uh, Vancouver uh, maybe he might have been originally from Calgary, but he was living in Vancouver in the seventies. Now he lives in Washington. His his, uh, his self proclaimed name is the Super Tramp, um, and he's sort of had this career in in northeastern northwestern United States, 
for a few years based on this false uh, reputation that he worked for Stampede in the 70s um, until I came along and debunked that whole myth <laughs> <laughs> with, with dates and details. So, uh, so yeah, the, the Golden Gloves thing, uh, I've found no evidence of that. Um, and I think the, the second book, uh, Rowdy, that his kids uh, co-authored. I think they get more. It, it's still not all the way there, but it's much closer to the truth and, and sort of the realities of Piper's uh, teenage years uh, growing up in, in Saskatoon and then later Winnipeg. Yeah, and I was wondered about that as well because you know obviously he had passed away during the course of it, and then I'm not, I don't remember who the the writer was for it because he had somebody like ghost right or however you what the, whatever the proper term is yeah um so it it always struck me as okay how much of this is now closer to reality then and i'm not saying that i don't mean to say that in a derogatory way either no absolutely but for absolutely. For, for those of us who because i'll be honest the true story of Piper is I find more fascinating than the, the glamorized one to, you know, when I'm, when I'm hearing about, you know, he's, he's a bouncer at a bar in Windsor park. And instead of, you know, you would think automatically that he's a, Oh, he's probably there brawling or whatever, but that he's there and just, he, you know, would talk guys out of fights. Essentially. You hear these stories about how, you know, he really was, from a young age, you know, in his teens and whatever, using his verbal skills that would, you know, so greatly help him later in life that these were developed at such a young age and that it just progresses. Like, these are the stories that I find more fascinating than, you know, the Falderall, to be quite honest, that you find with a lot of the, yes. a lot of the other programs. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely, you know, if Piper, you know, had come into fame at this point in society, uh, the way that he would feel comfortable in portraying his story, I think, plays out a lot differently. Um, you know, I in, in 2011, I had a chance to work with Piper pretty closely for several weeks, um, you know, doing a reality TV show called World of Hurt. Um and so you're on set for 12 hours a day uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, and there was stuff that he would, you know, ha sort of have these moments of honesty and clarity on camera. Uh, but then there was also like, you know, a, the real Roddy Piper when the cameras were off, um, where he would just share a little glimpse. Um, so one of the things I can remember him saying to, you know, one of the people, one of the younger wrestlers on the show was, uh, the locker room is no place for emotion uh, because when someone gets emotional, that's when anxiety uh, starts to rise. But that's also where, you know, those rivers in the locker room and, and those tormentors find their victims. Yeah. Um, they find the people that can be riled. So you never want to show weakness. You never want to tell your tale of woe. You never want to talk about the adversity you've overcome. Um you just always want to be conscious and protective of that image up to, uh, you know, being very uh, directive with promoters and bookers about what you will or will not do in the ring, you know, and, and specifically on camera. Uh, 
you know, and even long after, you know, their 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 peak period of their career, a lot of those guys of that territory are held on to that. I can remember working with someone who had been off TV for more than two decades uh, and was now in their 60s, uh, and they were wrestling, and they said, you know what, I can't, I can't be pinned because that kills my business. Oh, jeez. And I'm like, you know what, you're 62 years old, you're wrestling against guys that are 28, 30 years old at the peak of their careers. Nobody's expecting you to, to win. I mean, yeah, there's certainly that emotional and nostalgia um, component to to your appeal as a performer and as a draw. But you know, no, no one's expecting you to win the world championship tonight. When uh, you... Sorry, I... I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I had a question just in terms of your interactions with Piper on set. When you were working with him at the time, did you get the sense that he was kind of always Roddy Piper? Like that was just, that's who he was in, instead of like, instead of allowing himself to be, you know, human, he was just, he was always on. Is that something that you got from him in terms of, that's just who he was at that point in time? I think um, there's a lot more... I, I think that, that statement is true, but not in, in the way that you might believe. Uh, you know, we uh, you know, all got very familiar with uh, you know, Roddy Piper in the 80s. Uh, you know, cocaine-fueled on that rocket ride that was the national expansion of the WWF as the headline heel at the center of it all. Yes. Uh, and, and really, when you think about, uh, you know, WrestleMania, as much as that first initial push in the WWF was built on Hulk Hogan, it doesn't work if you don't have an antagonist uh, that is seen by the people as equal, or at least equally infuriating. Yes. And Piper was there in that mix with Cindy Lauper and Hulk Hogan and Mr. T in 85, 86, um, you know, and you know, he probably was wrestling fewer matches than all of his peers because he was able to say, "Listen, I'm not wrestling on TV. I'm just going to do the Piper's Pit on TV." If people are going to see Roddy Piper wrestle, they got to pay to buy a ticket. Yes. Um, you know, so he's always like very, very, you know, carefully guarded. What I what I noticed about Roddy Piper and. In, in some ways, I didn't see it until it was happening. Um, you know, we're working with a production company at a Calgary called Pyramid Productions. And um, you know, they didn't want to tell us anything because they wanted all our reactions to be natural. And, you know, I sort of understand what you're saying, but what you need to realize with professional wrestlers is um, nothing is on the fly or improv because uh, that's how people get hurt. So when you tell me, you know, I want your natural reaction, uh, you know, it's a little bit from that same school that Roddy Piper was talking about saying, uh, we don't show emotion uh, outside of bell to bell uh, without being instructed by the production company on where we're going. So uh, I'm forever grateful for that. And do you think that in in terms of that, like that's obviously a way that he he would have had to grow into acting like that, right? Like considering where he came from in in the wrestling environment, uh, 
there's no way that he would have wound up that way, I guess, is the best way to put it, if he didn't work on his character to get himself to that point, right? It would be very easy for him to just live off his laurels as a big star in the 80s, for example, and then just treat people like I think you can understand the way that I'm going with it, rather yeah. rather than step out of his shell and, and really try and be, you know, a, a bigger uh, person in terms of uh, helping others. Yeah, you know, and I think, though, um, with Roddy Piper, um, he is very genuine. And, and, you know, the one thing that that uh, he understood about wrestling is, you know, and, and this is this is one of those things that really gets lost in today's generation of wrestlers is you, when you ask somebody, why do you want to do this? And they're, they're going to give you lots of answers and say, well, you know, I just really want to, really want to, you know, get out there and, and do something for the fans or, you know, make my impact as a performer. Uh, you know, and Piper would be like, wrong answer. Like, wrestling is a business and we do this to make money and it's a great way to make money if you can do it right. Um, and so that's, that's his approach. But, I mean, you have to also consider that, you know, Piper came in uh, to the business in an era where old people really... Well, not old people, but established wrestlers really fought hard to maintain their spot. Yes. Um, and so, particularly in the territories, right? If, if you had a guy who was, you know, in the the Los Angeles territory, uh, his family roots were there. You know, his kids were in school. He didn't want to have to move to another territory. He's going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that he's always going to have a job in the Los Angeles territory. And then you have a, a young heel come up like Piper who just blew up the scene. Now you have have guys that, you know, are jealous. Um, you know, they're going to do things to, to, to rib you or compromise your spot. Um, you know, Piper's first tryout with the WWF went exactly that way. He got called up uh, from Los Angeles based on the report that this guy was getting great heat, uh, so much heat in Los Angeles that they could book him. Roddy Piper at six foot one and two hundred and twenty pounds against Andre the Giant and have people believe it. Yes. That's how much heat he had in Los Angeles. So on the heels of that, Vince McMahon says, Well, we need to see this guy in New York. So they fly Roddy Piper in from LA to work Madison Square Garden. And uh, you know, before the show, everybody's being really nice to him, like, you know, hey kid, you know, great to see you. Maybe there's a few guys hanging around that Piper recognized from his early days in the AWA. But what happened was Captain Albano, Freddie Blassie, and the Grand Wizard, the managers, decided they're going to rib this young guy. So he goes out for his grand debut, shot his bagpipes, uh, and is trying to play his way to the ring in Madison Square Garden, and no sound is coming out. And what they had done is they had, like, shoved tissue paper. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, into the bagpipes to, to deliberately sandbag him. That could have been a, a career-ending rib right there where, okay, well, here's this kid, but he fucking blew his own gimmick. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, like he, he couldn't deliver on this, this thing that makes him different from everyone else. We're not going to have him back. Uh, and so when you when you deal with that, where, where people will mess with you, um, you know, one of, the, one of the cool things about Piper, you know, and, and the reason he was so good with promos, he said, here's, here's my strategy. He goes, early on in my career, 
know, I'd be driving, you know, long drives from town to town, you know, making my bookings. I hear something on the radio. Maybe it's a radio jingle. Maybe it's a news story. You know, it could be anything. It could be lyrics out of a song, and it gives you an idea. And so I would take this yellow lined legal notepad, and I would have it on the passenger seat of the car. And as I would have that idea, I'd be like scribbling on that notepad as I'm shuttling down the freeways from town to town. And uh, you know, and that was you know one of the pieces of advice he gave us is, you know, if if, if you want to get over, you need to be able to get over in your promos. And if you're going to get over in your promos, you need to know what you're going to say, and you need to say it creatively. So always have that notepad. Always be jotting down ideas. And if anybody tries to look at your notepad, or you see somebody like messing around in your bag, mess them up. <laughs> um, because they're trying to take your money. Um, and so that's that's the era that he grew up in. So it's very easy for him to be suspicious of, of other people and not want to to uh, sort of extend a hand to help the next generation up, but I didn't find that at all. In fact, I found the opposite, where you know he was he was giving us the best advice possible, and it was very individualized to the guys that were part of that production. You know, the the advice that he gave to me was, listen, you know what, you are at this stage in your life, thirty five years old, you've got a young family at home. You know, at that time I had a you know a newborn baby at home. You got you got a steady job outside of wrestling. You got a, a nice family. You don't want to go and do this life. You know, you know, at best, you know, go the George the Animal Steel route, where you know you're in the case of George the Animal Steel. George the Animal Steel was a, was a school teacher. Yeah, that's in right. Detroit. Uh, she says you go and you do your thing, and then when summer vacation comes. You say, hey, mama, I'm going to make the retirement money, and then you go wrestle for the summer, and then you come back and settle into, you know, what, your pensionable earnings. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was, you know, really good advice for me, especially at that stage in life. Um, because, you know, if you haven't been signed, by the time you're 35, you're probably not getting signed. Uh, so you don't need to be on the road every weekend hoping to get discovered because it's not happening. Um, you know, work it around your life. It was, you know, a good good reality check, you know, to, to have. Not that I was uh, having any, you know, delusions of, of, well, you know, I think I still have the talent to make it. Um, you know, I, I knew that, that that opportunity had already passed me by. But I find that piece of advice, if, you know, the financial future aspect of it fascinating because often you'll hear, and it's not just the old timers. I don't want to say it that way, but you'll hear it's a lot of the bragging. It's you know the spend money now, make more later kind of way to look at things, right? Whereas yeah. you you look at someone like Piper, who's been there, who's done it, and he's saying like, no, like <laughs> make sure you're set up for the long run. Yeah, and I mean, you know, sadly, you know, we could, you could do a whole podcast just on on guys that were at the top, you know, top money in the business. Uh, they ended up penniless. Oh my God! Well, I just uh, and that was like last month. We just did Gordienko, and that's just you know look at what happened with him, right? Yeah, but I, you know I think you know Johnny Valiant. You know he uh, you know, he had an interesting interesting career. So he, he broke in, you know, in the New York territory. Uh, you know he did a little bit of stuff, you know, touring around some of the other circuits, but pretty much was based in New York for most of his career. Uh, you know, a great talker. You know, you know. 
good heel. Um, you know, and he had made a statement sort of after his WWF career was done that, you know what, I, I always thought there would be a spot in the wrestling industry for someone like me. You know, I never thought that the, the train would ever end. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, after his wrestling career was over, he did a little bit of spot acting uh, on some on some shows, but he was living in a, in like a one room apartment, you know, and 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 basically broke. Um, and, and, and sadly, there's lots of stories like that. So, uh, you know, I think you know Piper was a, was a guy who always separated business from family. Um, you know, and it wasn't until very you know later on in his career where you know you're even aware that well, geez, you know what, Piper has kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he had four kids, um, you know, and, and, uh, to, to do what, what we're, what, the, what we were doing as wrestlers at that time with the schedule that they had and be a dad and, and take care of everything at home, you know, huge responsibility. Um, and so I think that, you know, transitioning out of wrestling and getting into acting was, it was a great opportunity for, for Rod because it was, Less time uh, away from home at any given time. Uh, more time to be dad, uh, but still take care of the things that need to be taken care of. I wonder how much of his outlook on all of this would have come directly from his time in the territories before, quote-unquote, making it big. Because if he would have came through like the AWA or Portland or, or, or uh, Los Angeles or whatever and seeing how these, you know, top-tier stars were essentially burning themselves out, literally and figuratively, uh, how much of that would have affected his mindset of, like, I don't want to wind up like these guys. I need to figure out some other way to do this. Yeah, I think, you know, that that certainly, you know, played into it. And I think, you know, know, especially spending as much time in, in Los Angeles as he did in the formative years of his career and seeing the opportunity to transition. Uh, I mean, Hogan had the, had the, the cameo in Rocky three and, and had a few you know, guest spots on television, on sitcoms and things like that. Um, you know, there were it was sort of handed to him, but you know, Piper saw the opportunity to go out and, and, and actually make a career of it. Yes. And, uh, you know, he did, he did, I, mean, I think his film credits, he's done like 65 movies and TV shows. Yeah, it's quite a bit more than most people realize. Yeah. Because like, a lot of people will talk about, like, They Live. Obviously, that's one of the bigger ones. Yeah. That was kind of his, his first uh, breakout role. Um, uh, you know, there, then there were some really bad ones, you know, quite honestly. The, the, the martial arts movie with Billy Blanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the one but, with the uh, frog people. It, the name escapes me at this minute, but... Yeah, yeah. Hell Comes to Frog Yeah, Town. that's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there was also, there was also like, some some moments of of his, his acting career where, you know, where Roddy Piper himself kind of shone through. Um, and I think his, his final movie, uh, The Masked Saint... Uh, is one of those one of those examples of that where you really got to see Piper and even the even the cold case episode he did uh, where it was a wrestling themed episode and he was sort of playing the you know the 
one of the villains later on, you know, years after the incident had happened. Yes. Um, you know, there, there was, you know, definitely some kernels of, of real life that were threaded into that, that performance. And I guess he would have so much, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, criminality aspect of it, but there's so many stories and so much information that he would have been exposed to throughout his time in the territories. It's, you know, almost by osmosis that he's able to just draw upon all of these stories and fables and whatever and kind of mold them into whatever he needs to use at a later point in time. Well, definitely there's there's stories and, and legends we've heard about Roddy Piper that we hoped would, would show up in the book uh, or hope would be mentioned in the DVD uh, that definitely were not. Um, that uh, I'd say don't speak as much to who Piper was at the time, but what the industry was at the time. Can you speak to uh, any of those, by the way? Well, I think you know, probably you know one of the most uh, notorious ones that actually you know hit the mainstream papers was uh, an incident after a show in Fresno, California, uh, where they had. Uh, I think partly it was maybe they had a hot crowd, and now they're going to go out and they're going to go in the town. And being the Los Angeles territory, the Piper was very familiar with. Maybe he knew the right haunts to go to. Uh, where the where the party was going to be. So Don Morocco and Bob Orton Jr. and Roddy Piper um, are, are out on the town. They get in their rental car. Uh, some some incident happens uh, with their rental car, and they just leave it parked on a train track. Uh, they make it back to their hotel. Um, by the time they get back to their hotel, uh, somehow uh, Bob Orton Jr. gets locked out of his uh, hotel room. Uh, and he's running around the hotel lobby naked. Uh, you know, the, the the police get called, and then there's there's a brawl with this you know large naked man. Um, you know, if, if that type of incident, I mean, that was in 1987, 86. If that type of incident were to happen now in wrestling, oh my um, god, those guys wouldn't even report to TV the next day. Those guys would be fired. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's kind of a and this is one that's ever made press, but it's kind of a, a story that Piper has told to people, you know, in the industry, you know, that, that he's mentored, talking about sort of the peak of that time in the WWF in, in the mid-80s. And they're at Madison Square Garden, and it's almost time for Piper to go on. And uh, he's uh, in a bathroom stall, self-medicating. And... Uh, uh, specifically, you know, snorting lines off of a toilet paper dispenser. And uh, all of a sudden he looks up and he sees a pair of hands up the top of one side of the, the, the stall and a pair of hands at the other side, the top of the stall. And Vince McMahon looks over one side and Pat Patterson looks over the other side. They see what's going on. And Piper looks up from what he's doing and he says, you see that house out there? We're drawing. That means I'm doing my job. Now fuck off. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and with that, you know, the hands come down and the heads come down and they left him alone. You know, he was the, the company's top heel and he was doing the job he needed to do in whatever manner he needed to do it. Um, so now things like the wellness policy exist. Um, so probably that behavior you know, wouldn't wouldn't take place now, but at that 
period in time. Um, I mean, Jim Brunzel tells a story about, you know, sort of being at, you know, the height of that success and Vince McMahon himself, you know, doing an eight ball of cocaine in front of the, in front of the wrestlers, uh, feeling that they were invincible, you know, um, there was a lot of a lot of craziness that were happening in wrestling at that time. Well, I I even remember stories like from like Brett's book where they're at bars and just you know it's liquor and drugs and they're smashing the place up and it was like then it's on to the next town and that's just that's what it was. You know, and it wasn't. I mean, people can say, "Oh, that's shameful," but that that wasn't just the case for professional wrestling. No, and that's that professional baseball, professional yeah, football. I'm glad you brought that up because that is an important uh, aspect to, to what we're talking about. Like, it's, it's not like you know only the wrestlers were a bunch of maniacs and you know Zabadog had sort of hand. It was, that was kind of that's what was happening at that point in time in just in, in sports in general. Yeah, I mean, look at hockey too. Of, hockey was no different. Yeah, there's been a lot of fuss created about the plane ride from hell in recent months. Uh, you know, people have lost their jobs over it. People have lost endorsements over it. Um, there was a Major League Baseball team, and I, I don't follow baseball, so I don't know who it was. I think it was around 1984, where they had this drunken debauchery on a plane and completely destroyed an airplane. Um, that story hasn't uh, resurfaced. Uh, you know, now in the modern age, where there's no statute of limitations on public opinion, but you know, these types of stories are, are rampant in professional sports. So, you know, it certainly wasn't uh, exclusive to professional wrestling or to the WWF or to Roddy Piper. But I think that also feeds more into the Piper, the overall story, is that, yeah, he did the craziness. Yeah, he there was, you know, drug-fueled whatever as with yeah. everybody at that point, but you also, you get the other side of it where he comes out on the other side and then it's, then it's the acting and then it's everything else that he ends up doing. And I mean, obviously he, his, his life was cut way, way, way too short, but regardless yeah. of that, it's just, it's not like he was just, you know, a pill popping cokehead for 30 years. It's just not, no, that's not what happened. No. And I think that, you know, there's another there's another piece, to it. and every now and then you get like a glimpse at it, and then uh, you know something will get recanted, and then and then it's gone. But Piper, by the time he had hit, you know his his major opportunity in 1984 in the WWF, was dealing with some untreated trauma um, that occurred in the wrestling business. Um, uh, and, and specifically, uh, he was raped. And every now and then, you know, he would be doing an interview. Um, I'm trying to remember specifically. There was one particular interview that Piper had done where he was really, you know, his hair was grown out. He had a ball cap on. He was kind of slouched in a chair, very disheveled. Uh, and he, he makes reference to it about, you know, something happening to him and, and there was a story circulating for a while that it was Pat Patterson that had done something to him while they were in California and Piper came out swinging saying no that absolutely did not happen uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't uh, you know Pat Patterson has never done anything to me um, 
but something did happen, and and, and I can speak to that because um, when we were doing World of Hurt, one of the first days that we were on set, he had the whole crew there, uh, and he's kind of going through his his wisdom and advice for wrestling, and out of nowhere, just kind of in passing, he's like, you know what, this is a hard business. Uh, you know, there are many dues you're going to pay. There's so many sacrifices you're going to make, and I've and I've paid them. And he said, you know, I was raped. And then, as quickly as he said it, he was on to the next topic. Um, none of that dialogue made the final cut of the show. Um, you know, and and certainly for that period of time, there'd be a lot of shame associated with that. Yes. Uh, you know, nowadays, uh, probably you would be, you know, still maybe embarrassed and ashamed, but it's not career-ending, um, and there's there's less stigma around outing the offenders uh, as there was at that time. And so when you when you sort of you know put all that together, you know, dealing with this untreated trauma, dealing with the pressure of being uh, a main event heel for a national company as a guy that's only six one and two hundred thirty five pounds, uh, you know, pitted against a guy that's six seven and three hundred pounds. Um, you know, the, the the pressures to make sure that you're taken care of creatively and not used as a disposable heel uh, to build that monster baby face that Vince was building his company around to be able to provide for that family of four that you've got. You know, for, for family of six, including himself and his wife, yes, uh, at home in Portland, Oregon. Like all of these things contribute to the behavior and the decision making and, and the stresses on the man. Which I again, you know, I, I kind of keep circling back to this point of like, look at how all of these things kind of shape him who he winds up being. But it, what's more impressive is how he was able to pull out of a lot of this, right? It, um, not just from, you know, a pretty rough childhood to, you know, dealing with stardom to then dealing with other issues and traumas that happened to him and seem to, you know, unfortunately keep happening to him and then yeah. still and still kind of rise above and get out of it after it all. Because it would be very, very easy to go down a very, very dark and dangerous path and... uh Wow, you know it's it's almost shocking that he didn't. Uh, you know, it, it, and it's almost horrible to say that, but it's you look at how many yeah. times it's happened in the past, right? Yeah, he was he was a very um, you know resilient character, and you know one of the things that I think you know the, the lasting impressions that that he left with me. You know, we started talking about family and. Uh, uh, you know, he had that, that leather jacket that he wore everywhere, particularly later in his career. And uh, as we're talking about family, he reached into like the inside zipper pocket of his of his jacket, and inside like a, a Ziploc sandwich bag, he had a picture of his family uh, and his passport. And those are the two things that he kept closest to his heart. He was always got my family with me wherever I go, and my passport in case I need to get out of somewhere quick. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know that uh, that was what Rod was all about. You know, it, it, it was it was about navigating this very 
political climate of professional wrestling as a means to feed his family. Um, you know, and 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 making trying to make the right moves um, politically to make sure that uh, he was able to to get over and stay over for the duration of his career. Now, as we start to wrap up, is there any any stories or aspects of his his uh, early life or life and career that we haven't touched on that you would want to touch on? You know, I, I just think that um, you know to look at at Roddy Piper's career. I mean, definitely um, his promos stand out as um, those that that endure the test of time. You can take a, a Roddy Piper promo today, and it's just as relevant and just as good uh, as it was in 1985 or even earlier. And I think you know, if you if you're you know googling you know Roddy Piper promos, you definitely see a lot of his stuff from the WWF pops up. But probably the best promo, if fans haven't seen it, is one that he cut while he was wrestling for Vancouver All Star Wrestling. Um, this is you know while in the time he was in Portland. Uh, circling back to work with Al Tomko, who had sort of given him his break in the States. Now, Al Tomko is the promoter in Vancouver. Uh, Piper is teaming with Rick Martel, and they're in a program against the Sheep Herders, uh, related to the Bushwhackers. Yeah. And uh, you know, Piper does this big setup talking about how he's ready uh, to face the Bushwhackers and how tough he is, and in doing so, you know, breaks a beer bottle over his head. Uh, on live TV. Um, and it's not a candy glass one because the, the blood comes instantly. <laughs> so if fans haven't seen it, I, I definitely recommend that they check it out. Um, and if you can find it, the rebuttal from the sheep herders the following week on TV uh, is just as good uh, and, and what they do with their beer bottle. But uh, just the... Um, you know, Roddy Piper was a guy that was committed to his craft at all costs uh, and took it very seriously and took himself very seriously um, and respected the wrestling business. And um, I think that that is, is definitely, on top of being, you know, a, a family man that did whatever he needed to do for his kids, um, is his lasting legacy. I think that's about as perfect a way as we could end uh, this conversation. Uh, Vance, honestly, this has been absolutely tremendous. Um, where can people get in touch with you to see what's happening with the book and your other projects? Uh, the easiest way to find me uh, at the present time is is on Facebook. Look for Vance Nevada. And um, I'm hoping that within a matter of weeks, we'll be looking at uh, a pre-sale announcement and, and full details on uh, how to get the book in hard copy or sort of hardcover, soft cover, and uh, e-edition. Tremendous. And then, uh, obviously, as I get those details as well, I'll be passing it along to uh, all of the listeners to this program. Vance, thank you again. I can't thank you enough tonight. Absolutely. Uh, my pleasure. I'd gladly uh, come back again. Before we head to the finish of tonight's program, I'm going to play one more classic Roddy Piper audio clip. This comes from the aforementioned uh, incident in All-Star Wrestling, Roddy Piper and Rick Bartell versus the Sheep Herders. I would highly encourage anybody to uh, seek this one out on YouTube as well because the video or the visual is just, uh, it's something else. Just 
Piper with the beer bottle, smashing it. There's blood everywhere and fire in his eyes. And he lays it on the line. So please enjoy this uh, classic Roddy Piper audio. Once again, if you have some time, search for it on YouTube yourself. And uh, on the other side, we're going to close up part one of our two-part series on Roddy Piper. Where, your forehead? Yes, sir. Oh, well, it's not going to be my navel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Let's go silence there. Okay, okay quiet. Silence there. Watch this now. And that is a genuine beer. I just checked it, didn't I? Oh! All right. Come here, Bob. Come here. I want Whoa. you to see the glass in my hand. And you listen to me, sheep herders. You listen to me. This would knock just any normal man down, sheep herders. But I want you to just think about one thing. This getting this title in the cage is going to make $45,000 different in my annual earnings, brother. This is the biggest match of my life, and I'm going to do it with my partner. And you listen to me. There's an old saying, Chief Brothers. You think we're just getting started? Saddle the ponies. Listen to me, brother. Saddle your pony. You bet. Sheep herders, you're in for a treat. It is showdown time, and showdown time, you bet. And we ain't even saddled our ponies yet. And animals like you, sheep herders, you put them in a cage, or we put them to sleep forever. around the place here. We're going to be taking a break in a minute. I notice there's glass in the ring, so somebody will have to remove that piece. We can't wrestle with it later. As we finish up tonight's episode, part one of our two-part series on Rowdy Roddy Piper, I first off really want to thank my special guests for joining me on the program this evening. Craig Baird, Cam Cotter, and Vance Nevada. I couldn't have done it without you guys. I really hope that everybody enjoyed the insight and information that each of them brought to the program. And I really hope that everybody understands kind of the progression of the program today how each guest, without knowing it, fed into the next guest, and how that all kind of comes together to paint a proper picture of Rowdy Roddy Piper, one that I hope will inform quite a few of the listeners. I hope that there was uh, quite a bit of information that you guys didn't know before, and I would also hope that it would spurn some more... um, information seeking of your own you know question a little bit of what you read but also you know go through the youtube videos watch roddy piper and his interviews right uh read the information that you could read out there at least with the basic understanding of of what is fact and what is fiction and i think in my opinion at least that the fact is way, way, way more impressive than any fiction uh, that was out there previously. So once again, to my three guests, uh, thank you all very much for joining me on part one of the Roddy Piper program. Now, before we get out of here, I had mentioned earlier on in the program that we had some uh, five-star reviews that were left for the podcast, so I want to get into those real quick. Uh, This one comes via MouthDork on Apple Podcasts. He leaves five-star review, or they, I should say, leave a five-star review. They say, this podcast is an incredibly entertaining and informative endeavor. Every episode is a massive deep dive. 
If you want short snippets of information, look elsewhere. These episodes are hardcore history lessons. Listen to the latest episode on Gene Kaniski to understand what I'm talking about. The conversations are rich, inviting, and a blast. Stop reading this review and just click subscribe. You won't regret it. Obviously, that one was left a long time ago. I have no idea how I missed it, but thank you very much, Mouth Dork, for leaving that tremendous five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We also had another five-star review left, once again, on Apple Podcasts. This one from CaperBC says, five stars, excellent podcast. Andy the Taxman does a fantastic job of presenting each subject from an unbiased perspective. You can tell this is a labor of love for him, and it shows in the quality of each episode. Fantastic, knowledgeable guests complete the package. A must-listen for every wrestling fan and any Canadian history buff. Thank you very much, Capper. Sorry, Caper BC for that five-star review. Once again, if you guys leave me a five-star written, written, written review, you can tell I'm verklempt and bum-puzzled at the end of the program today, as I usually get. But if you leave me a five-star written review, I am more than happy to read it on the program. So once again, whatever podcast player you are listening to this program on today, uh, please leave a five-star rating and a written review where applicable. Also wanted to make mention, I wanted to give a shout-out to uh, Thomas Bryce from the Sportswire Network. That's where you can hear this program on terrestrial radio, which is pretty interesting. Uh, Thomas has quite the collection of... Oh, he's got everything from baseball to wrestling to hockey, all kinds of sports, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on the Sportswire Network. So you definitely want to check them out on Twitter. They also have a Facebook page as well. You can find that easily uh, navigating through this program's Facebook page, Grappling with Canada. Also wanted to make mention as well, uh, in the show notes for this program, you can find ways to donate to the program to help us out. Uh, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. Uh, you can use the PayPal link to directly donate to the program. Or you can head on over to grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com. It is the official merchandise store for the podcast. And once again, all sales of the classic Grappling with Canada uh, t-shirt are donated directly to charities. So hop over to grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com and pick up some show merchandise. And when you do, like my boy Thomas did, make sure you let me know so I can... I uh, give shout-outs on social media and kind of put it out there for everybody else to see. Also, I want to make mention, I was very pleased to be uh, a guest spot on the Sunday Night Army podcast once again. Uh, Jacob did a tremendous episode uh, regarding music from our, or from people's pasts, and uh, some kind of songs that shaped us throughout our lives. So I was uh, very fortunate to be a small part on that program. It was a lot of fun. And I want to thank Jacob and the Sunday Night Army podcast for having me along for that one. I also want to make mention that I have a small guest spot coming up on an episode of Fireside Canada. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with that program, um, David does a tremendous job of exploring some Canadian folklore. And if you're a fan of Canadian history 
I'm sure you are because you're listening to this program, but more so if you know some of the stories of World War One, and you've heard the story passed down through generations of the crucified Canadian, he has an unbelievable episode on that story specifically, which I was blown away by. It's fantastic. So once again, search for Fireside Canada. I'm sure it's on whatever podcast platform that you are listening to this program right now. And uh, look forward in the near future to a little cameo uh, from the Taxman on an upcoming episode. Once again, you can find this program on any podcasting platform of your choosing. Uh, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or steal your favorite podcast, you'll find us. Also want to make mention, youtube.com slash C slash Six-Sided Podcast is the YouTube page for this show, where you can also see the video for Manscaped, the fine sponsor for this program. Once again, go to manscaped.com, and when you go to checkout with your various wares, and by the way, there are always uh, some tremendous values on uh, bundled packages. So, one, you get this tremendous value on a bundled package, Two, you also get to use the promo code GWC at checkout for 20% off further and everybody's favorite free shipping. So once again, Manscaped.com, a fine sponsor of this program. I highly suggest that everybody goes out and uh, checks out some Manscaping wares and where to dos if you will. And once again, use the promo code GWC at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. You can also reach me anytime, sixsidepod at gmail.com, and I'm going to do something that I've never done before on one of my programs. Because part two of the Roddy Piper program is going to be quite a bit different than this episode was today, for various reasons, I would put... The, I'm going to put this out there in the ether and we'll see what happens with it. If you have a Roddy Piper memory, if you have a story, if you have something you want to say about Roddy Piper, send me a voice memo to sixsidepod at gmail.com. That's all letters. There's no numbers or gimmicks or anything in there. Sixsidepod at gmail.com. Send me a voice memo. By the way, you can find that link also in the show notes of this program. Send me a voice memo, and I'll try and get a few of those on the second part of the Roddy Piper episode. I think it'll be a lot of fun, and I think it'll be a very interesting to see what, you know, the general consensus is about Roddy Piper. Uh, what their favorite memories of him are, maybe a favorite match, maybe you met him before. Anything like that, I think it'd be very, very interesting, super neat, and honestly, I think it'd be a lot of fun. So, once again... Send a voice memo if you're not sure how to do that. You can also email me, and I'll explain how. And by the way, any emails at sixsidepod at gmail.com. I do read. I read everything, and I respond to everything, especially uh, when I go through my spam folder and find a bunch of stuff to go through. But anyways, uh, send me some voice memos, and I will uh, see what I can do about getting them on part two of our Rowdy Piper series. So, for all of that being said, for myself, the taxman, for my tremendous guests that I had tonight, and to all of you, 
I will leave you as I usually do. Take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone. <laughs>